Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is Cameron. I got, I got a little, I got a little creature. Oh, a little creature. Can I, can I yeah. see it? It's Mr. Bing Bong. <laughs> Mr. Bing Bong? What, what, what is Mr. Bing Bong? He's a possum, and he swirls <laughs> up and down. And one time, a trash can lid fell on him and squashed him flat. <laughs> and a wonderful man named John Coffey breathed on him, and he came right back to life. Well, you know, we, the science is still out on all this, but... Uh, he does somersaults. The, the, <laughs> the first person account here is pretty persuasive to me. He, he rolls around like Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> Just old Mr. Bing Bong. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bing Pong, the hedgehog-like possum. Uh, he uh, actually, when that when that trash can lid fell on him, all his coins flew out. John <laughs> Coffee put the one coin back in. <laughs> he was blinking. He he was blinking like a son of a bitch that whole time. <laughs> a full five seconds. John Coffee put that blink right in. Coin in. <laughs> John Coffey resurrecting, like, various iconic uh, video game character death poses. It'd be good. Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you see the Super Mario Brothers movie? I did, actually. I, I just watched it uh, during my trip home with my uh, niece and nephew. Hmm. What'd you think about it? Uh, perfectly fine. It doesn't really have a story. No, it, it's like a weird collection of set pieces. Uh... In, in no way is it as brilliant and remarkable and longstanding as the 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie, which remains an all-time favorite of me. Uh, Mario says Wahoo less than I thought he would. Mm-hmm. And he says Mamma Mia maybe maybe more times than Bob Hoskins ever said Mamma Mia. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine who has two small uh, boy children. Uh-huh. They watched Mario, and mm -hmm. in the Mario film, Luigi's in it, uh -huh. and spoilies, Luigi's the damsel, uh -huh. and uh, previously, in these, these children's life, Mario, when they played Mario's, you mm -hmm. know, like they're, they're pretending, they're imagining things and doing Mario's, one would be Mario and one would be Luigi, and that was cool. Yeah, right. P post movie? No one wants to be Luigi. Oh, no. Luigi has been banned <laughs> to, you know, to, to to the realm of goofitude. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, what do no. you think about that little uh, uh, suicidal creature? Uh, it felt like pandering like a uh, like a pandering to depressed millennials. Yeah, I was going to say it was like this is like somehow this thing is pandering to me. <laughs> <laughs> It's good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Yeah, it's a little break here at the beginning. It's, like, it's the one minute and 30 second review of <laughs> Super Mario Brothers movie. I, I mean, I said this on co-host, by the way, check me out on co-host, cohost.org slash Lutz. Uh, I wrote a very brief review where I just said it's remarkable that even this movie has 9-11 imagery in it. Um, <laughs> You know, you kind of <laughs> hard to get away from it. I guess. <laughs> I get, yeah, I guess. Uh, uh, but yeah. Uh, other than that, we're going to be talking about 1996's, well, w- one of uh, the three, arguably, possibly uh, eight Stephen King novels published in 1996, uh, The Green Mile. That's right. <laughs> Wait, so Desperation Regulators come out this year, too? Yes. Yep, they, wow. they release on the same day in September, I believe. And uh, The Green Mile is released serially. Uh, in case you uh, don't know, uh, a serial novel is a novel that is released in installments. It was very common uh, in earlier periods of, like, the print market. Uh, Charles Dickens was famous for writing serial novels where you would get like a chunk of the novel each month in a magazine, uh, and you would follow the magazine every month to get, you know, the next installment. Uh, Stephen King, uh, references Dickens as kind of an inspiration for the Green Mile experiment. He also talks about the Saturday Evening Post, which I know has come up, uh, a lot in previous episodes. Uh, and, and uh, genre work, right? I yes. Mean, it, it's still fairly common if you buy, you know, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction or whatever it is, you know, the kind of digest size. They still do serialized novels every now and again. And certainly, uh, you know, novellas over two issues and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so uh, The Green Mile was published in six installments, uh, standalone little paperbacks, uh, like chapbook sized uh, from the beginning of the year to about the middle Um, I don't remember the precise months, but the uh, idea was, or rather like what I've been able to kind of reverse engineer because I started digging into the websites using the Wayback Machine at archive.org to kind of see what was going on. And the thing that I thought was notable is that uh, the... uh, so first of all, everyone is kind of making a deal out of the fact that Stephen King is like publishing so much in a year again. Uh, when the Green Mile finally finishes, uh, like being serialized, uh, the website takes on all of these like, you know, Stephen King makes publishing histories the first time that an author has six books on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, which he did. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing is that after the serialization completes, uh, the website takes on kind of a, a new bio for King, a new biography, and it very much centers the Richard Bachman persona and the hmm. Bachman books collection, which I think is fairly recent to this time period. But it's also basically like restarting that brand because Desperation and Regulators, which we're going to read over the next couple months, uh are released on the same day and they're twin novels and one is written under King's name and one is written under Bachman's name. So the other thing that I discovered uh, that I thought was really fascinating, I need to double check this guy's name, but uh, the review uh, when it appeared in the New York Times uh, was all of them. It was all three mm-hmm. things were reviewed at once in October of that year by uh, writer and poet Robert Polito. Okay. And one of the observations that he makes uh, is that uh, this is all so much marketing to move so much product. Now, it is actually a pretty favorable review for The Green Mile. He doesn't like Desperation and the Regulators as much, but I'll save his thoughts on those for those episodes. Uh, but uh, 
I think, you know, I, uh, what I think is interesting about Polito sort of underscoring that is that it's what jumped out to me as like, oh, this is interesting. Like King, we've talked about this over the past couple episodes at this point, right? The the 90s is like this big realm of brand experimentation for King and kind of like, what can he get away with? Uh, and that is at least in some degree recognized by Polito in that review. Hmm. What's he say? Uh, I mean, basically, it's just like, well, it's a lot. And then he goes into his review. He, as I said, he he kind of he likes the de- he likes desperation more than the regulators. Um, and then he's actually quite uh, yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> you ever read like a normal book and then the worst book ever written <laughs> side by side and then made a determination which you liked and which you didn't? Yeah. Uh, and then he's overall much more positive on uh, the Green Mile, although the actually this is helpful to pull out here just because it might frame our conversation a little bit. Um, the thing that he excavates from all of this, and it's notable also that he kind of reviews them in reverse order, like he starts with the uh, Desperation Regulators duo and then finishes with uh, Green Mile. Uh, the other thing that he locks onto is that there is an examination of God and faith going on in all of these books. Um, and in particular for Polito, uh, it is all conceived of in terms of Gnosticism. Uh, that's oh. going to become more explicit, I think, in in regulators' desperation, because uh, I thought that was an interesting angle to take on the Green Mile, which we'll you know talk about actually eventually soon. Uh, but uh, it is interesting how like oh yeah, you can kind of like if you're talking about all three of these in a go, you can kind of like work some of the stuff backward into this book and think about like how the cruelty of God is being presented in the Green Mile and how that may or may not jive with other things that are are you know, coming down the stream toward us, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's of a, it's kind of a, where do you draw the line at Gnosticism? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of like, what is the minimum barrier to entry to start using that word? Mm-hmm. Uh, if only because like King, he, it's the religion that shows up here in the green mile and really has been showing up since the mid eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, we can even maybe think about, the birth of some of the stuff being with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm just looking at the list here and kind of thinking about it. even going back through Pet Cemetery. But, you know, this has always been in King, sometimes more heavy and sometimes less heavy. I mean, think all the way back to Carrie and Carrie's mother, right? Mm-hmm. Like Carrie's mother is very religious and ostensibly is an evangelical Christian. And yet her God is perhaps not other people's God. Um, right. Or it might not operate the same way. And so there's always been this contestation within King about like, what is what is the truth of God and what is the truth of religion? And does religion apprehend the reality of God? Mm -hmm. And uh, we could take that as like a Gnostic comment. And I guess like in the grand tradition of the history of faith practices going back to, I don't know, like a thousand BC, something like that in a very particular segment of the world. Uh, you could call that Gnosticism, or you could put that in the train of Gnosticism. But it's also, to me, like, here's the flip side of that. Like, okay, I'll grant all that, whatever. The flip side of it is, is it's a kind of, like, down-home Mainer uh, sensibility, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, you know what? We got all this religion over here, but really what people need is a simple thinking about God. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really what's happening to me in the Green Mile, and it's really effective in the Green Mile. Mm-hmm. Um, I think extremely, but I don't like, I think that's New York Times in it up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, something that is, I, I think, a common 
um, faith practice for lots of people, right? You know, what, what some people, um, you know, negatively would call like cafeteria Catholicism or whatever, right? You take the parts that are useful to you mm-hmm. about the faith practice and you hold on to the idea of God, but the the orthodoxy itself is is not helpful for you. And that brand is common. That's been common in America for a very long time. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that 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 organized faith practices around Christianity, they are always in the minority. They're often a vocal minority, but the reality is that most people who are quote unquote Christians in the United States are a broad and general type who are interested in the idea of God. And I think that that is what King is pulling on here, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he's not, he, he is, has always been since the seventies, um, has been always responsive to evangelicals, but still holding on to some idea of God. Um, mm-hmm. And so when you thematize that, right, that's going to sound something like Gnosticism, I think. But I, I the other thing that I I guess I'm asking a question at this point, does it get into the review of the fact that, like, it's the 90s and new age, <laughs> whatever is everywhere at, at all times and all moments? So, yeah, Polito, uh, yes, he does. He doesn't do it in those terms because I think, you know, he's still living in the middle of the 90s and it's hard to uh, talk about the soup. Um, from that vantage point. Uh, but how he slots it together is, uh, oh, he calls it sort of like, um, he, he talks about it as like millenarian apocalypticism, right? We're, we're heading yeah, up sure. on 1999. So that's kind of how he recognizes it is he doesn't say, oh, like it's the 90s and new age is in vogue, but he talks about it as like, you know, to another person in 1996, you sure have noticed all the weird stuff that's been uh, creeping into popular culture lately. <laughs> I uh it's very funny that so I was like as I said that I was like well who is iconic you know I was thinking all right what's the next thing I'm gonna have to bring to people here historically it's the 90s and I was like oh it's Sylvia Brown right like mm-hmm. and if if people don't remember or don't know Sylvia Brown Sylvia Brown was a popular psychic mm-hmm. um who was kind of instrumental efficacy who could know right you know but instrumental in the kind of solving Solving unsolved murders with psychic stuff. Yes. Doing mm-hmm. what I would call cold reading, right? You know, I'm I'm like capital S skeptic on many of these things, right? Especially people who go on television to perform. But she was on television performing with Oprah and Dr. Phil and all those kinds of people through the 90s and lots of different talk show hosts and things like that. Uh, Montel, I remember her being on Montel in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But uh, she was very popular in that up through the early 2000s, probably, uh, when I lost track of her and she died at some point um, fairly recently, right? Uh-huh. Uh, 2013, it looks like. But here's where these things lock together. In 1986, this is on Wikipedia, 1986, she founded a, quote, Gnostic Christian church in Campbell, California, known as the so- Society of Nova Spiritus. So, Maybe uh, this reviewer is actually keen into mm-hmm. the language of the time better than I am keen into the language of the time. Maybe maybe I'm doing the overthinking of it <laughs> um, because because if she's adopting those terms, right, then then the then that's what this reviewer is talking about. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, millenarianism that matters. I, what King doesn't really have a Y2K book, right? No, I don't think he does. That's a that's one that he skips on. You're, the closest he probably gets is Cell, and that's healthily post Y2K, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like a uh, uh, that's a technology panic. Book. Yeah, Yo, that, that is also a 9-11 book. God, that is a 9-11 book. Yeah, wait, when is his accident? 
99 or 2000? It is, it is 99, I think, is his accident. Okay, so maybe that's it. Maybe he just didn't have... Right. Maybe he ran out of time. Oh, you know what? Storm of the Century is 99. That's pretty. That's, yeah, that's sort of, yeah, Y2K-ish. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a disaster coming, and how do people deal with it? Right. Yeah, June 19th, 1999. Yeah, so, so uh, man, can you imagine it? Mm-hmm. So he missed out on it but mm-hmm. uh anyway we'll, we'll, you want to talk about the book now you want to actually do this did you read this book in its serialized format originally or in in your reread no uh i read it actually that's a thing i need to explain this all this is a surprise for the listeners uh as this was originally released in six installments over the next six months we're going to be reading it that's what the next six episodes of the show are about that would be awful <laughs> Each one would be I'm, like half an hour long. <laughs> every every part of my life. No, that's impossible. We every one of them would have been two hours. Yeah. <laughs> <You know that. laughs> uh, the uh, the there's very few things I regret more than reading the stand twice. Uh huh. <laughs> and and being the person who pushed for that, I was like, no. And you're like, I don't think we need to do it. And I was like, no, Michael, we need to do it. It'll be good. <laughs> like that'll be good stuff. Little did I know, we didn't need to do that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I did, we did have a conversation about this. Should we treat them all as separate publications or should we read them? Uh, because two as separate publications would have been kind of cool because it would have been simulating the experience of reading the green mile. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause they did come out they came out basically a month at a time, right? Or one, one a month. Not yes. A month at a time. Mm-hmm. It took one month to read each of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you, if you got it, uh, in too little time or in too much time, they took the book away. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, and I guess sounds like what you're saying is they started in the spring of that year. Yes. Yeah. Finished up by the summer. But you didn't read the little bitty volumes. No. When I read this for the first time, it was like in the collection. I think probably probably the same sort of paperback that I have now, which is the movie tie in with Tom Hanks's uh, astonished face on the cover. I, you know what? I bet that I can. How old are you in the sixth grade? Uh, me specifically, like 12. <laughs> No, yeah, anyone, anyone. Yeah, grade. 11, 12. I can, so I can tell you when I read this, I read it in 2002. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, I can tell you, I read it in fall to winter 2002. Okay. I get like, I can definitively tell you that. Um, and, uh, I remember distinctly, I remember when this book came out, this is probably the first Stephen King book I remember releasing. Like, you know, coming out. Yeah. So I was a little kid. And I remember it because uh, we went to the library at the beginning of each of these. Because my, my, do you remember my mother being like, I'm not fucking paying for this. <laughs> I'm not paying for a little bit tiny book from Stephen King, but I will go to the library and get it. Mm-hmm. And so I just remember like week two of every month going to the library to make sure they had it. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to, and they had like a million copies of them. So I remember the the you know the little slim volumes. They're really cool if people can can get a look at them. You might want to wiki them. They look cool together. You know, kind of all as a a little set. Uh, and I remember that. And then uh, I at some point read like the first or second one of them, like in between 1996 and 2002, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. I, I I read some some of them. And then in 2002. I read like the first three of them in individual volumes because our school library had them and then they didn't have any of the other ones. Hmm. Everyone got tired of buying them. Um, and so then I like found I went to like the public library and got the the full 
omnibus version. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when when did the to- when did the movie come out? Nineteen ninety nine. Okay, so it I I had the Tom Hanks on the cover movie tie in version, right? Uh, of of the book. So I remember this one very distinctly. We're about to get into the point where I like really remember these books coming out yeah and i really remember reading them yeah actually it's funny you say that because this is it's the same for me that um i remember seeing these books on like the shelves in walmart for sale because they had mm-hmm. very bright neon covers yeah but, they, right they all kind of look like the cover of the exorcist a little bit yeah they're all kind of eye-catching and i remember at this point like post uh sort of seeing those i remember seeing the covers of uh, the regulators and desperation on the shelves. Those are also very eye-catching colors or colors covers that we can talk about. And then I remember seeing Wizarding Glass. So this is truly like I have attained consciousness in a way that I didn't before. Uh, and <laughs> now I have actual memories of of all these things. <laughs> hey, you just want to you want to list off some uh, eye-catching colors real quick? Uh, I'm thinking electric blue, mm-hmm. aquamarine. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really like ruddy autumnal orange UV purple. <laughs> I got some, uh, I've pointed some flowers. Yeah. Some zinnias that are called a UV. Uh huh. And shits is bright. Oh, I bet they are. Uh, so, but yeah, so, so we're really getting on this. You have a, before I guess we do some sort of summary or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got two notes here, both of which are, I think maybe helpful. This is a serial novel experiment that King does. He lays all the information out for us in the kind of intro. Was this in the, do you know if this was in the first volume? Like, I think it was in the first volume um, because notably it is not in my uh, movie tie-in version. Oh, so you have a movie tie-in currently? Yes. Oh. Yeah. And they did not include this note, which I was sort of upset about because like, what the yeah. hell? It's pretty helpful. I've got it. I have the uh, most recent, you know, whatever, Gallery Books publication Uh version of this from Simon Schuster. Um, And so, you know, it's just a good old standard Stephen King $11 thing. Um, And uh, yeah, basically, he just says like, hey, some people thought this would be a a good idea to sell a bunch of books. And I thought the experiment would be interesting. So we did it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he you shared some links with me. He made uh, ooh, kiss kiss a uh, 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 buttload of money. On yeah, this one. Yeah. Uh, uh, apparently, he was paid a one million dollar advance for each of the installments, and and he wasn't done when the first one came out, right? Like he was yeah. writing them as they were coming out. So he, yeah, I think he was in the middle of writing the fourth volume when the first one published. So it was truly uh, serial in that way, like was not mm-hmm. finished. And I think I uh, picked up. Uh, this is a. a by way of uh, Grady Hendrix's write-up about this over on the tour website, the great Stephen King reread, he quotes King in an interview with Neil Gaiman uh, saying that he had a story in mind um, that wasn't getting, as he puts it, enough oxygen. And so he actually started writing this serially basically as a way to force himself to finish it. Like if he if he had already mm-hmm. published parts of it, he felt like he would get locked into actually completing it and writing the ending. I have uh, I have a lot of caveats to what I'm about to say, mm-hmm. um, like like a lot of caveats, but uh, stylistically, at the level of craft, at the level of just there just not being a bunch of horseshit in here that you have mm-hmm. to swim through in order to actually understand what's occurring, right? Like the plot in eventual logics, just kind of moving through the thing. 
This is the best Stephen King book we've read in a long time. Yes. Like, I think I like Dolores Claiborne more. I probably like Rose Matter more, like just, you know, affectively. But I think if you were to ask me to kind of stepping back just from questions of enjoyment and if someone was saying, hey, what are the Stephen King books to read to, like, get what Stephen King is doing or to understand him as a stylist or to understand him as a, you know, this kind of writerly figure who's approaching the world in particular kind of ways – this is pretty high up there. This is this is cracked the top ten for me. It mm-hmm. might have cracked the top five. We do need to do our annual summer bonus episode oh, that's where we true. like re rank everything and answer a bunch of questions. Stay tuned for the end of the show where we uh, ask you for questions. Mm-hmm. Maybe, that, maybe that'll come out next month. But yeah. uh, generally, I, I'm 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 shocked. The it's good. The book is really good. Yeah, this is I I said to you uh like that this is the easiest read we've had in months. Uh and not because it's like a well, it is in many ways a simpler novel and it's simpler because like it's a novel that seems to know what it's doing and like what it's aiming toward and I think maybe that's because of the uh uh the circumstances of the publication, right? This kind of like serialization yeah. provides a sort of structure to King. That means he can't get like wrapped up in all the minutia of like tracing a stolen credit card or whatever he was doing in Rose Matter. Well, and, and it's also that it's six books, essentially. Mm-hmm. And in each book or six parts, it's a book in six parts. Each part, only one thing happens. Yes. You know, and that's like so and he starts getting fiddly with it about halfway through. You know what I mean? He starts like really trying to to get clever with it. We get like two parallel timelines happening eventually and we could lose the old guy timeline. We don't need it. You know, if if you were to mm-hmm. ask me to make like a hard cut here of like what would be effective, anything dealing with actual plot stakes in the old guy timeline, we can get rid of. It doesn't matter. It is just good reflection. It does not need to have a plot of its own. But outside of that, it just kind of goes like it, mm-hmm. it's uh, I think you're right. It's easy, but it's also um, like many of the books that we've read. It's a uh, interesting rerun at a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's a rerun at a lot of the ideas from the past six or seven books that we've really enjoyed and a rerun that cuts out all the things we didn't like, essentially. You know, so I, I think in some ways this is a book that appeals to us and this show in particular because mm-hmm. it's some stuff that we think is cool that just happens to come back and kind of get rerun at the same time. However, all of that said, talking about the caveats, all of that said, uh, John Coffey is one of the most fucked up characters that Stephen King has ever written. Um, and see, in it, it's like watching a man drive into a brick wall. I mm-hmm. mean, it really, he is running into his, the limits of his imaginary in like 55 different ways. And I could, as I was reading the book, I kept being like, we'll get into this in a bit. We don't have to get super detailed before we get to the summary or whatever. But the, the thing that was astonishing to me is it's like, I can trace all the things of how he gets there. Uh-huh. And I'm astonished that he doesn't think it one additional step once he puts it all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe he can't because the tr- the train's going, right? Like, the books are already coming out. You can't. Once you have the representational thing going on with John Coffey, right, of, of this very particular in specific and explicit form of, uh, you know, black male representation. Right. Mm-hmm. Once you've created this container that is John Coffey of all these different things, it's not like you can go back and revise. Right. right? You know, it, it, it. Once you're done with the book and you look back and you're like, Ugh, you're like, you know, Stephen King's <laughs> tugging on his collar. Hopefully, good God, you gotta hope he does. 
um, you can't go back, right? You know, yeah. the, the reality of serial fiction. So maybe that's part of it. Um, you know, I, I would hope that he would be more reflective about John Coffey in the in the sum total of the thing. Um, but also it's Steve. And uh, as I told you while watching the Mist special features, he was very happy to do, you know, like jive talking black man voice in a special feature recorded in the early 2000s. So yeah. I, maybe Steve's, you know, thinking about racial representation is still uh you know not shaking out entirely anyway sorry i'm monologuing about what's going on there but uh, i yeah i don't know um uh, seems like you're really positive on it too yeah i mean in, in much the same way where it's like damn like formally stylistically uh this is one of the most pleasant reads we haven't we've had in a long time i was reading it uh mostly on plane rides and i was just like burning through it like it is just so smooth it goes so easy and also the whole thing is structurally arranged around one of the worst considered uh, choices, I think, in the entire King oeuvre, right? It is, it is the apogee of the magical black person trope that he has been dinged for using multiple times in, in his career. I don't think it ever gets worse. <sighs> The movie, I'll, I'll say this. Well, is so I, yeah, the oh, movie yeah. gets much worse. <laughs> yes. The movie, I think, is. Well, I'm going to go wild on the episode. I guess yeah. is what I, I don't. I don't want to spoil it here, but like I, we're that's going to be a. It's going to be a long one. I'm sorry to report we haven't recorded it yet, but it's going to be a long one. And I have such clear. I haven't rewatched it, but I've seen it many times, and I have such clear images and now having the book so fresh in my mind to compare it to the film as a text you know to, to see these things it is to the level where i'm like i don't know if frank darabont should have been allowed to make another movie like yeah it's that level to me of like what the fuck like why there's so much that is in that movie that is so egregious that is not in the book and yeah. that to me is astonishing yeah <laughs> it's like wait a minute hold on you had to do this more you had to like hammer on this even more mm -hmm. um and um you know which is not to take away well we'll talk about it on the bonus episode which is out right now you can you can hear it right now over on patreon.com but it's not to take away from um michael clark duncan's performance which right. is incredibly uh affecting in the way that michael clark duncan was always able to do that you know we, we will and, and sadly he's passed away mm -hmm. um but uh but but he is he is being asked to work within a very specific kind of ecology of representation, and he is doing the thing he's being asked to do. But the the script, the story, the direction, the uh, saccharine melodrama of it that that amps all those things up. I I think that those things are uh, maybe as bad as it gets. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Anyway, that's a little preview for the, the Patreon bonus episode. Yeah, we're, we'll have a lot of talks about, uh, I think, probably adaptations and visuality and like what visuality does in that movie that in, in kind of a merciful way does not happen here because we're dealing with a novel. Um, well, it's also a movie, too, that is about the power of cinema. Yeah. In a way that this is not about the power of literature. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you know what I mean? It's not like it was like, oh, it's a book about books. And so we made a movie about movies. Right. Right. You know that. Yeah. I think about that a lot with the um, with the. Uh, uh, annihilation novel versus film right, right. Uh, I, I i'm on the record i think that the i i would say that the film is better than the novel by a, a pretty substantial margin for me i've taught them both side by side a lot mm -hmm. um and i think the reason that it's so interesting to me is that it it does a wonderful job of 
taking the logic of the book, not the yes. content of the mm-hmm. book, but the mm-hmm. logics mm-hmm. of the book, mm-hmm. and then using them to think about cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that's not happening here. This is not. This is not a story about the nature of prison stories or a story about the nature of execution, things like that. It is, it's, a, it's just a straight up linear story about people on death row and people <laughs> killing other people on death row. Uh, hot topic in the 90s, by the way. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, and the film is a film about movies that yeah. also takes place on death row. So um, anyway. Patreon.com slash range touch to check that out. Uh, you get a lot of other stuff over there as well. Anything else we want to say up here at the top, Michael? No. Sorry, I'm getting into shelf by genre mode. I know, I know. I'm uh, not the one. Not it's particularly, not I think. I think we've kind of covered all of like the groundwork. And it, it, it somehow, if you're not familiar with the Green Mile, I feel like this is one of the better known ones, maybe by virtue of actually the uh success of the film version in the 90s. Um but uh, uh, if you're kind of on the fence about this one uh, and you don't want to get any spoilers, you can listen to maybe the the summary that's going to come up. Uh, but it, as you said, Cameron, I think in terms of like figuring out Stephen King, like what do people like about him when he's like really doing it well? This is a good one for like the pro style tone and just kind of like the smoothness with which everything works. Uh, and with that in mind, then I will hand it over to you for the five sentence summary. Five-cent summary is uh, unprepared, and I thought this was your summary for some reason, even up to this very moment where I'm now doing it. Uh, It's where we just summarize the novel in five sentences, try to give you an image or an idea based on um, what we can come up with off the dome of what the book is that we are reading. Now, right here at the top, I got to admit it, I don't know the name of the main character. Uh, do you want me to tell you or do you just want to like I, try to flail? I, I do want you to tell me. His name is Paul Edgecombe. I definitely, I was like, I think it's Paul. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, it's Paul Sheldon. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> I don't, that can't be it. Okay. <clears throat> Paul Edgecombe is the boss at the Green Mile, open parentheses, a euphemism, question mark, close parentheses comma, which is death row at Cold Mountain Prison, period. Lots of people get killed by the electric chair there, period. (laughs) John Coffey is sentenced to death via the electric chair because he is convicted of killing two young white girls, open parentheses, John Coffey is black, close parentheses, comma, but he seems actually incapable of having done that. Period. Okay. This is sentence four, correct? I I I think, think so. so. I kind of got okay. lost there. I think it's the beginning of our. This begin, I hope this is beginning of sentence four. I've been told by the. This is not part of the summary. I've been told by the way that quite a few times in the past we've only done four sentences, so I get mm-hmm. a freebie every now and again. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, but I believe this is beginning of sentence four. Sentence four. John Coffey is magical, and he is able to suck out pain and injury and death. From other beings in the world. 
comma. And he deals with lots of people on death row and helps people and eats all the world's sins and then <laughs> is summarily executed for it. Okay. Period. Period. Uh-huh. Period. Wait, was that was that a, was was that the end of a sentence, or did you put an ellipsis there? I would say ellipsis. Okay, I would say m dash ellipsis m dash. Um, <laughs> final sentence. All kinds of kooky zany shit happens on the Green Mile, comma, and some other people get killed and or die, comma, and there's also a, a, a far future plotline with old Paul Edgecombe, <laughs> who is 108 years old. Comma, who gives a shit? Whatever. It's uh, the world is dying. The end. <laughs> Period. I like how you called it the far future plot line. It is it, the far future. If... It's like seven <laughs> years in the future. <laughs> it's just like, look, this is the story. I'm good with the summary. Sometimes this... I go, this is a complicated book, okay? Uh huh. Right. I guess it's I could have done one a... sentence per thing, <laughs> per book. Yeah. I, I should have thought about that literally 10 minutes ago. <laughs> What's a lot going on? It's about a guy who runs death row and he's got a bunch of assholes who work for him and he's got a best friend who also works for him and right. he's got to kill a guy who shouldn't be killed. Right. Guess what? And he's like part Guess of what? Buster Brown. No one should be killed by the state. <laughs> he's part of some sort of like secretive guild of torturers and he's writing in retrospect about all of the things that he's done. That's right. Mhm. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Talk about the bulkhead. Yeah. <laughs> and his and his mouse. His mouse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's all kinds of just other shit going on in here, right? But that really is kind of the big structure of the thing. John Coffey shows up. He is someone who's been convicted of murder because of, of racial prejudice, essentially. Yeah. And uh, and uh, he shouldn't be killed. Mm-hmm. And yet he is. Yep. Because no one has the will to quit their job mm-hmm. and not do it. No one, ha- no one can be a conscientious <laughs> objector in this world. Because, no. hey, I, I know you don't know about this shit. Michael, listener, I know you don't know about this. There's this thing called the Great Depression. Huh. Tell me about this. You don't want to get involved in that bad boy. Okay. Mm, You want to keep your job. Even if it means that you are killing literally Christ. Yeah. (laughs) If if you're a Roman ass soldier stabbing Christ on the cross up there. Totally yeah. cool. Because like what else is there? Right. The bread yeah. lines? Yeah. Pilot's down there and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Messiah. There's a depression on. There there is a depression. But that is I I'm joking, but that is also literally said. Not the not the stabbing Jesus part, but the like one of the characters believes that John Coffee, because he is truly magical, that John Coffee is like a gift from God. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I think we are all damning ourselves by killing him. But he does yeah. it. Yep. Note, note also the name, John Coffey, J.C. Mm, mm, mm. Oh Just like you know J.C. Denton in Deus Ex. You think the people over there at uh, Looking Glass, you think they played? <laughs> or they they uh, read The Green Mile? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the key intertext. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but yeah, we got Paul Edgecombe, mm-hmm. our, uh, ma- ma- our, our MC. You know, our POV guy, <laughs> yeah. our in in the uh, in the isekai that is uh, n- the 1930s. Yeah, you, know, you go back to a magical time when like your neighbors didn't have a, a telephone. <gasps> oh my god, it's a different world. 
Uh, and he's writing his memoir. Mm-hmm. This is way later. This is presumably in the 90s. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. And he is writing his memoir. And so that's what each of the books are. And they each kind of start maybe other than the first one, but the rest of them start with a kind of like recap that happens and also him like updating you on what's going on in the you know retirement facility that he is in mm-hmm. that his grandchildren have forced him into and uh real, real big concern in the nineties. Uh, and also for Stephen King, uh, this gets talked about in insomnia too. Uh, there's a lot of stuff from insomnia that's coming back up in this one. I think. Yeah. Now Paul is very much a second run at Ralph Roberts, which is another, it's an observation that Grady Hendrix also makes in, in his column. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we, we walk through it. There are three, um, well, there are technically, I guess, five people that we see on the green mile on death row who Mm -hmm. are are planned to be executed by the state. Um, there is a guy who's called the chief. Yeah. Who's the native American fella Mm -hmm. that they just say a bunch of racist shit to. It's 1930. Mm -hmm. Um, there is the president Whose name is, is his name Jefferson Davis? Uh, something bizarre like that. Uh, right. it's not straight. I think his like middle name, it, it, it's, I don't think his first name. I think his like middle name is like a reference to Jefferson Davis. I don't know. Well, he, uh, he is condemned to death row, but is not killed. His sentence is commuted. Yeah. Uh, we got Delacroix, who is like yeah. a Cajun fella. Mm-hmm. By the way, the novel is set in Alabama. Yeah. It gets a little weird because people are constantly going to other states in ways that are confusing. But yes, especially for the 1930s. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I believe it's set. I'm 99 percent sure set in Alabama. Um, yeah, it, it's and, clearly not set in Louisiana where the film is set, because there's a point at which someone makes it clear that Louisiana is like one state over or something. Yeah. Well, and also, uh, I think the film's just set there because of tax credits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh the uh, so we got Delacroix, who's this kind of Cajun Creole dude, mm-hmm. um, like a little little balding white guy, uh, and we got John Coffey, mm-hmm. who was was uh, a large, like incredibly large, like he's like six five or something, right? Really mm-hmm. big, large um, uh, guy who's convicted of murder, and then we got Billy the Kid, <laughs> oh Randall Flag himself, yep. <laughs> Just just uh, kind of, a, 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 I guess, an evil greaser. Yeah. Uh, uh, an that, evil farm worker. Right. Somehow the, uh, the, the medieval period's evil greaser. <laughs> right. They sort of like uh, the, the, the duty of that role gets split here between him and Percy Wetmore, who is obsessed with combing his hair. He's one of the guards on the mile, and he's like the shittiest little boy in the world. <laughs> He is the shittiest little boy. All right. Well, I just talked about all the inmates and they all get their own time. Uh, the first two get just a little bit of time, but we do get, uh, you know, the execution of the chief. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how we're kind of introduced to how does this work um, and what's the process. There's a lot of ritual involved in it, all this kind of stuff, legality. Um, but we get these prisoners. But the way the novel works is that it's. Paul Edgecombe telling you about his relationship to the prisoners alongside his relationships with the other guards. You, you want to tell us about some of these guards, Michael? Yeah. So uh, apart from Paul, who's uh, the head of the the block, you know, superintendent or supervisor or whatever, 
there is an assorted motley collection of other folks. Uh, the kind of second in command is this guy named Brutus Howell, also called Brutal, because he's the big guy, right? He's kind of the muscle of them. Uh, and then there are two other guys, uh, Harry Twilliger and a guy named Dean Stanton. And these guys are basically interchangeable. They have nothing uh, particularly uh, distinctive about them. One of them almost, it, it's Harry, who almost gets strangled by uh, Billy the Kid, Billy Wharton. Um, oh, no, I think it's the other one. Is it? Okay, well. I think it's the other one. Yeah. I think it's the the sniper from uh, <laughs> uh, Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you're right. They are, they are, I, one has glasses, I think. Yeah. Something. <laughs> yeah, they are, they are interchangeable. Uh, and then the other important one, uh, is Percy Wetmore, who I mentioned, and he is kind of the, uh, the problem of them. He's the youngest and newest of the guards. Uh, he has political connections. He only has the job because his uncle is the governor. Um, and he is a huge brat and clearly has like a kind of power fixation or some kind of morbid fascination with being the person who is going to kill someone. Um, it's, you know, the, uh, much is made out of the fact that he's like always reading like, you know, boys adventure magazines. And so mm -hmm. he's got this kind of adolescent uh, fixation on being the guy who, you know, is in charge of the execution and all that. And he's also like, He's the one who's constantly like, if you're mean to me, I'm I'm going to tell my uncle and you're going to end up on the bread line. Meh, meh, meh. Mm -hmm. So everyone hates and they him. They keep being like, why would he be here of all the jobs you could get on the planet? Right. Why would you? And it's just, he just wants to kill somebody. Yeah. Like he just wants to exert power over them um, and uh, and read porn at work. Yep. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's not my favorite Kingism. I'll save that for later. But truly one of the most wonderful sections of the book is when they are commenting on the fact that Percy was reading a, um, a Tijuana Bible. Yes. Right? Uh -huh. So uh, a uh, porn comic that takes popular characters and then makes porn out of them. Mm -hmm. And the uh, it's a Popeye comic yes. book. Uh -huh. And King keeps intercutting things that are in the comic book with the action that's occurring in front of in front of us the reader so it's like the guards are talking and he's like and olive oil is having a grand time yeah or whatever. and popeye's <laughs> still got his pipe in his mouth yeah it's, uh, it's, it, he couldn't help himself <laughs> that's real uncle steve shit right there yeah but, so those are yeah, like, so he's, he's a little yeah. weird guy yeah those are the main guards and then there are some supporting characters uh the warden of the prison warden moore's um, he has a wife who is very sick. Uh, her name is Melinda or Melly. Uh, and she's got a, it, it, as it turns out, a brain tumor, which may also be something more than a brain tumor. That's something for us to discuss later in kind of the grand uh, Kingian metaphysics that are going on here. Hmm. Uh, but uh, so that's kind of an important uh, uh, like subplot. Um, and then there's also uh Paul's wife, Jan, who we hear a lot about. He talks to her very often uh, and she's died at some point. And as he's writing again, like he's he's writing kind of his memoirs, you know, he remarks a lot on like missing her. And also he's got like this friend Elaine at the retirement uh, home. So we get another rerun of insomnia and kind of like the, the second wife issue or not exactly second wife uh, for because for Paul, it's mainly like. We're not going to bang anymore. I'm too old, but it's nice to have someone who's kind of basically my girlfriend. But he also says, I would if I could. Yes. <laughs> I'm uh, a billion, but if I weren't. <laughs> uh, so there's this is a real book about that? guys yeah. with wives. I'll it is. 
It is. Like, everyone's always conferring with the wife and being concerned about the wife and trying to resolve things with the wife and not pissing off the wife. <laughs> and good God, Paul Edgecombe's wife, anytime he's got an emotional issue, she's uh, DTF. <laughs> like, yeah. to the point where the, the plot stops making sense sometimes. It's like, there's a point later in the book where he travels across the states to do some straight up crime investigation. He's true detective in his ass yes. across the South. And he comes home and the first thing she knows what he's been up to. And the first thing she says is like, hey, you want to get a lucky punk? You feeling lucky? <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's just it's very incongruous. I mean, shit, whatever people can do. I'm not here to to police people's lives. You can do whatever you want to do. But in terms of the writing of a of a novel, Right. Of like mm -hmm. events that happen in time. It's a little conspicuous is all I'm saying. It was the depression. They didn't have much else to do. That, that's exactly right. And he's always thinking about his job while they're having sex. <laughs> Often yeah. he's thinking about John Coffey crying, <laughs> which is like, that's not a thing. You, that's not an image you want to sum up, yeah. summon up in your head while you're, you know, uh, just you're trying to, to live your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I think actually Moore's is probably the Moore's and his wife are kind of the most important mm -hmm. supporting characters. There are some other people. There's like Toot Toot, who's the trustee who uh, pushes around the food cart. Uh, yeah. Similar a tr to a, tr a trash can man of some sort. Yes. Um, uh, Hammersmith, who is the reporter who reports on uh, Coffee's arrest uh, and trial for the murders that he did not commit. But Hammersmith is like dead set on believing he did. Um, and then there is actually uh, the most important character, perhaps in in the novel, uh, Mr. Jingles, the most magical mouse who has ever fucking lived. You know, I prefer when think of a mouse a motorcycle. I was or, thinking or like or a cookie, honestly, <laughs> the way that Mr. Jingles is treated by this novel is like. It would not be uh, out of step as if by the end he was like driving around his own little Model T. <laughs> Just like beep, beep. I mean, it would be out of step if he could like do taxes at the end, right? He had, <laughs> yeah. like, he had the little shade on. He had his little lamp he had to click on, right? Like yeah. <laughs> just straight up. He is he is a magical little fella. And, and here's the thing. I mean, we'll talk about plot wise why there's a magical mouse in here. But. It is fascinating to me that it never makes me annoyed. Like, you would think that this novel about death row inmates and the horror of the state murdering people and the even worse horror of knowing that you're murdering an innocent man who has only been convicted because he's black, like all these different things that are so prescient and still a social issue from uh, 1996 and forward and, in fact, all the way back for uh, hundreds of years. You would think... That the little mouse would detract from that. <laughs> or when it showed up, you'd be like, I don't need the Jingle stuff right here. But I was mm -hmm. always happy to see Mr. Jingle show up. You know what I mean? I'm always yeah. happy to see this little mouse. And he doesn't overstay his welcome. Yeah. Polito, in his review for the New York Times, he, he, he gives special commendation for Mr. Jingles. Mr. Jingles is like his favorite character. <laughs> but yeah, Mr. Jingles is just a little mouse. And he shows up and he can like... Uh, He's he's also magical. Yes. Uh his his magic is eating bologna. No, peppermints, uh which is actually well, it, he yeah, he also eats peppermints. That is that's a sign of how magical he is because mice hate peppermint. Oh. Like that is Oh, like, no, I do know that. Yeah. I, I guess that makes sense because there's a lot of like anti-rodent 
you know, like non um, non harmful anti rodent sprays you can put like on your garden and stuff that are mint based because they don't like the smell. Yes, exactly. So the fact that Mr. Jingle specifically comes out and looks at everyone with uncanny intelligence and then does little tricks for peppermint just really underscores how magical Mr. Jingles is. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, well, where do we want to start? That's all the characters, I think. Yeah. As far as I can tell. Oh, and also the haunted electric chair. Oh, yeah. Old Sparky. Yeah. It's it is full of the dead and dying. Mm hmm. John Coffey tells us that that's that. Let me. OK, let's get into it and we'll get into it this way. I'm going to give you a provocation. OK. This is a horror novel. Oh, damn. Out of left field here on the Stephen King podcast. <laughs> But uh, this uh, the reason I say that is that this often gets talked about in terms of uh, the Shawshank Redemption, obviously, Rita mm-hmm. Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption uh, in different seasons, which we've covered here on the show. Um, Darabont does both movies, right? You know, this is a, a, a thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some linkage there. But it gets talked in that because it's, you know, people often say something to the effect of like, well, this is Stephen King writing one of his non-horror Things or one of his non-genre things, right? It gets treated as this kind of realist novel or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or more realist than other stuff. It, you know, it gets talked about in the same conversation as those other books that might trick you into reading genre literature. Mm-hmm. Number one, it's I mean, it's about prison guards, so like it's already part of genre, just not yeah. one of the ones we think about primarily. Um, and number two, it, it it's a horror novel that's just about the horror of death, right? Yeah, and, and the horror of what can be done to you outside of your control. I mean, that's all over the whole book. Yeah. Um, it eventually becomes about kind of what, what hath God wrought. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but I, and I think that's, that's really interesting because that it comes into pretty sharp contrast, um, you know, in the back half of the book or something like that. But really, I don't know. I mean, tell me, does, does Grady Hendrix pick up on this or do the reviews pick up on this or do they treat it like they treat, Dolores Claiborne and these other ones, right? Where it's like, these are just realist novels. I mean, the the NYT review definitely is not treating it as like straight up realism because it's putting it within the context of King's uh, religious ruminations uh, evidenced in, in Desperation and the Regulators. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grady Hendrix uh, actually spends a good deal of his thing talking about the problem with coffee and kind of uh, trying to point out that as much as coffee is the the very tired and embarrassing trope of the magical black person, um, that there is an edge to the way that that character is written that is often overlooked. Um, and I actually think that that is true. Not that there is an edge to the character exactly, but an edge to the way that that character is situated within the novel and like what the novel overall has to say about uh, what you were just talking about, which is like the horror of death and kind of not just the horror of death. I would venture uh, the horror of being alive. Like there, there are two sides oh, yeah. of the same coin in this story. Yeah. Yes. Um, and one thing that I think is notable about the Darabont film, again, preview for what a conversation we'll have later, I'll get into this. It softens that a lot. Like it makes like the Darabont film makes it the sort of like a uh, 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 uplifting, um, like period fantasy film. Right. That I think a lot of people think of when they think of this story as, as that kind of thing. Uh, and. This, yeah, I, I agree with you that this uh, doesn't start quite as a horror novel, but by the end is maybe not a, a horror novel in name, but is thinking a lot of horror novel thoughts. Right. Uh, you know, I think a lot about Christine 
over the course of the show, right? I've, mm-hmm. I've gone back to Christine a lot in my head for a lot of different reasons, just because the my understanding of that novel has really changed over the many episodes we've done since it. Um, if only because it's so odd. It truly remains odd in Stephen King's oeuvre um, in a way that was less apparent at the time. But like, you know, the whole kind of turning away from the main characters at the end and the whole last, whatever, 50 pages or something where mm-hmm. everything is by inference and and the originating moment of you're just you're just compelled, right? Kind of like the the um, the. Rose Manor painting in Rose Manor, right? You're just compelled, right? Like mm-hmm. this, these things just happen, they occur. And there's something horrible about that too, right? That the inaugurating incident out of your control is horrifying. Right. Um, and that there's a little bit of that in here too, right? That what what's so difficult for Edgecombe over the book is that he actually is able to piece everything together and understand what has occurred in order to put John Coffey on death row. And that knowledge in and of itself is debilitating, mm-hmm. right? Like that, the, and, and I think you're exactly right. It is as much about being alive. You know, there, there's the phrase that shows up a couple times in the book of like, uh, every, everyone gets, everyone is owed one death. Uh huh. You know, that happens a few times and like, that's it, right? It just, that looms and the knowledge that one might have death at one day. Um, and yet it is not yet here mm-hmm. <laughs> is, uh, it, you know, really affecting to these, these, these people. Um, uh, and the attachment to life of of fate and inevitability mm-hmm. um, becomes so so difficult for them, um, which weirdly enough is going to keep going on. I mean, this is going to be a thing that goes on with King at least through the end of the Dark Tower mm-hmm. of of questions of determination, fate, inevitability, and we just saw some of that with Rose Matter as well, mm-hmm. where um, her evil husband right kind of gets uh, interpolated by this mythological thing, right? Right. Like, right. He's as much deciding to do it as it's doing to him. There's, there's not, it, at least when you once he puts on that bull mask, that's what's going on. But right, um, you, you want to talk about each book in order? Is that perhaps the best way to to work our way through it? Yeah, sure. So the the first uh, chunk, the first book is called Two Dead Girls, uh, and it is mainly scene setting. You know, introduction to Paul. He's in this rest home. He's writing his memoirs. He's talking about being, uh. Uh, the the bull goose screw on death row, which they call the green mile because normally it's called the last mile, but they call theirs the green mile because it's got green linoleum on the floor, the color of limes. Uh, and he introduces us to all the characters, uh, the penitentiary and kind of who's who there. Uh, mentions a little bit about uh, some of the uh, convicts that we've already discussed uh, and then introduces the character of John Coffey, who comes in uh, to be held there uh, and the the sort of official story of what Coffey did and why he has ended up on death row. Uh, namely, he is he has been convicted of kidnapping two young white girls uh, while they were sleeping on their uh, porch. Um, and then raping and murdering them. He was discovered by a search party holding the corpses of the girls, like their bloodied corpses, uh, in his hands and screaming, uh, uh, I tried to take it back, but it was too late. So he gets... I I couldn't help it. Yeah, I couldn't help it. Yeah. 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 As well. Right. Um, So you hear that and you think, oh. Yeah. Well, I know what he's confessing to. Yep. So he has been uh, uh, imprisoned, uh, and right away there is 
something odd about him in that despite the the viciousness of the crime he has allegedly committed, he is extremely uh, gentle. Uh, he is like, uh, uh, you know, simple, right? He, he might be uh, intellectually disabled. Um, he like yeah, he can't remember anything more than 15 minutes after he's told. Right. Like he, he truly seems to have a, a like brain damage. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it is a whatever the literary character might be that you might be imagining here that me, he might have some sort of intellectual disability, something like that. Whatever your imaginary is of this, it is 10 steps further down the road than that. Yeah, um, he he is impaired in a way that is like kind of unquantifiable. Like, I, I don't uh-huh. know of any kind of a fastic, um, I don't know. It, it, it is a cluster of things that I don't know if they appear in the real world other than people with advanced dementia. Right. Right. Well, and it's like, uh, uh, you know, he's also he's extremely childlike. One of the first things he says when so uh, Paul Edgecombe, who is uh, this should be flagged like a good prison guard, capital G good on on that right like uh he is a man who approaches his job with kind of um solemnity and sort of uh, a sense of respect for his inmates uh uh not to say that it doesn't you know uh go in some other directions we get like one really interesting discussion he has with himself about his belief in the reality of hell and that most of the men that he's executed mm-hmm. went there and so on and so forth right yeah um, yeah, he is an honorable prison guard. I don't right. know if he's good. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think good within kind of like the logic of the novel compared to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Percy, right? Oh, oh of course. Uh, yeah, he is. If there's a good cop and a bad cop, right there, mm-hmm. he's the good one and Percy's the bad one. Right. Uh, but but notably, and I think this is, you know, something that is strong in the book. Uh, he is he is good. But in terms of moral behavior. The book is pretty clear that like no prison guard can be a good person. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's it's just like, you know, and you can feel however you want to be about that. I'm not espousing an opinion or telling you what yours should be. I'm saying that this is how the book holds it, that the the work of being a prison guard is such that uh, in general, not even on death row, in general, you are intimidating, bullying and disciplining and violating other people. Mm-hmm. And they do that as part of their job and they have they have a routine for how they do it and they lord that over their prisoners and other prisoners and they're all nice people right like they're honorable and to one another and they Paul Edgecombe's whole kind of thing is like he's a fair dealer you know you you do the thing you're supposed to as a prisoner and he does the thing he's supposed to as a guard and he's not going to violate you in any kind of way but if he needs to get four dudes together to beat the shit out of you as as part of the job, he's just going to do that. And there's mm-hmm. no moral qualm about that whatsoever, because that is the job. Yeah. And the book doesn't flinch from that, that like that mechanistically uh, and descriptively sucks. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's not that's a bad way to organize a society and a bad way to think the world. Uh, and yet that's fine. But within that, you're exactly right. Within that, he's the good prison guard. Right. When there's a new inmate who comes in, he like is waiting in the cell. He has a conversation with them, sort of explains how things are going to work. Like this is again, like this is good or like honorable. Right. He as he's trying to be a a fair dealer uh, within the bounds of kind of like what his position entails. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like when he has this conversation with Coffee, uh, Coffee asks him like the, the first question Coffee asks when he's like gone through the whole thing is like, well, do you leave a light on at night because I'm scared of the dark? Right. But yeah, he's a he is a Tom Cullen. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and it, he's another run, I would say. I mean, really, it's what 
you could remove um, the... It would be difficult. It would be difficult to extricate these two things from one another. But it's what if Tom Cullen were in a... Um, oh, not... We keep, we keep talking about him on the show, and I'm blanking on his name. Not James Patterson, but... Uh, John legal. Grisham? John Grisham. Yeah. Right? Like... What if Tom Cullen were in a John Grisham novel? And actually went and looked up because I've read what is it, a Time to Kill, Grisham's yeah. first novel. I've I've read that before, like way back in the day, and I was like, I'm pretty sure it's kind of similar to this. And it's not really. It's 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 quite a bit different, but it it does deal with questions of what is justice for a black man in the world, right? Um, and that kind of thing. But you can really feel like this feels like a setup to me. And I've mentioned this over the past couple episodes. This feels like King trying to do a Grisham, um, at least in the sense of, hey, the justice system, it's fucked up, y'all. <laughs> now I'm going to do some Stephen King shit within that, but it's in the same framework. It, it, it is, you can feel the, the Stephen King, um, like John Grisham writes about attorneys and intellectual shit. And all of this hodgepodge stuff that these educated attorneys get up to. What about the working class involved <laughs> in the whole process? What are they up to? It's yeah. like really at the end, I was like, this is a shadow John Grisham novel. <laughs> this is what <laughs> happens to after the public attorney gives up because John Coffey's a black man in who's convicted in a rural county and no one's ever going to give a shit about it. Right. And the book says that repeatedly. <laughs> it says, look, our judge isn't going to like look at this again. The The police are not going to admit they did anything wrong. And they're racist. Mm -hmm. Like on top of that, even if they thought they did a thing wrong, they have an incentive not to. Um, and so I really felt that way about that. And it, it is interesting that the injection of King here, right? Or one of the things he brings to it is, well, he, he'll just be Tom Cullen also. Yeah. Who also is magical. Yep. Yep. Uh, and not to like, uh, I guess, reveal too much about the ending, but one of the things that you discover over the course of uh, all six volumes is that he's not just Tom Cullen. He's like super powered Tom Cullen, right? It's like, yeah, it, it, like, you know, uh, we've talked before, gestured at this, that there are uh, even though no one in this book uses the word the shining, right, or the phrase, uh uh, John Coffey has the shining, right? The logic and the way that things work, it's exactly the same, but it is like uber powered, right? It is like mm -hmm. the strongest possible instance of the set of uh, qualities and powers that like Danny has in the shining. Like it's all the same stuff, just like cranked up to 11. And so he's constantly, it's implied, right? That like part of the reason he's so like weird and, uh, sort of distant from the world around him um, is not even necessarily like intellectual disability, but that like he is incapable of not hearing the thoughts of every single person in the room with him. And it is yeah. just like, you know, it, it like it makes it impossible to like concentrate or inter interact with people normally. Right. There are points in this novel where um, because he's because he's psychic, he knows where the novel is going. And so he just like presents the right phrase at the right time or like, you know, is like, OK, like time for the next plot development. And we can talk more about that. But like that's. Yeah, the uh, I had the same thought that and I actually kind of wondered about, you know, what is the. Does King have like an internal idea of what the shining does and how it works? Like, is this what would then happen to Danny? 
And, and we mm-hmm. know that that doesn't happen, you know, right? I, you haven't read it, but I've read Dr. Sleep. That doesn't really happen um, mm-hmm. to Danny. But I did wonder that, like, oh, is this him kind of extrapolating from these previous ideas or or uh, because, um, oh, uh, the cook from The Shining. God. Halloran. Halloran. Not O'Halloran, but Halloran. <laughs> uh, you know, Halloran's grandmother teaches him, like, how to harness The Shining. Right. right? And, and kind of help himself. And I, and I believe that... Um, Oh gosh, uh, Mother Abigail also had someone help her with it. Uh, I don't remember. I think so. I think she also has a like a she mentions a family member or something like that. Although it could be confusing those two things. Um, but you know, so there's also this kind of like uh, double issue going on here, I guess, right? Of like the history of Stephen King's represent representation specifically of black people, um, mm-hmm. and then black people with The Shining. Right. Mm-hmm. Has a very particular kind of thing going on with it. And we get John Coffey here again. And then we also get John Coffey kind of like he he's every stereotype of a black man that is possible to conjure up in 1996. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like he's fatherless. That's we learn so little. He he cannot remember his life, period. Mm-hmm. He can't remember things that happened two minutes ago. And yet in a non-dialogue expository thing that Paul Edgecombe tells us. He's like, oh yeah, John Coffey told me that uh, uh, he didn't have a dad, that his dad ran off. And it's like, well, what the fuck, man? Like, yeah. of all the things to, to to conjure up here, you you had to come up with the, like, the Moynihan report here in the middle yeah. of the mm-hmm. of the of the thing. Um, and, and he's massive, he's huge, but he's also a gentle giant, which is also in this kind of stereotype universe. Yeah. It, it is like every... It's like playing whack-a-mole, right? It's just like every bad choice you could make, he makes. And like for no juice, right? It's not as if he he's constructing this big apparatus that then pays off in some kind of like major way. And we, and you know, like bad racial representation to pay off. That's like a hard calculation to start like making, right? But mm-hmm. one could imagine a universe in which these things are commented on or thought about or even seemingly considered other than to kind of make this hulking package of magic, right? Yeah. But 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 it's not. Really like the end of the thing is isn't it bad that the state kills people that are innocent? And it's like yeah, it is. <laughs> like I don't know if John Coffey needed to be constructed in this certain way in order to make that happen. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, in and in many ways, just replicating the same ideas that lead to the same problems, right? Like the the history of John Coffey as a character, uh, unrooted, wandering, hulking, menacing. Those are the things that are at, uh, they they are in conversation in play in the in the problem of representation itself, right? Mm-hmm. So like when these black men appear in these books in this particular way. It creates a a mental image of a particular kind of thing. It's a pathologization, right? Yes. You know, to mm-hmm. to to use the term of the field, right? And it's also, um, you know, uh, this production of hyper visibility, right? A particular kind of image and a particular kind of being get associated with one another. Um, and then, lo and behold, at the end of the day, John Coffey's still a murderer. Yeah. Like he couldn't even get out of the book without murdering someone. It is like, wild how that happens. Right. Like of all the people to do it, like, why did Brutal not do it? And then these like 
white guys cover it up. And then you actually get a really great parallelism mm-hmm. of and, and one that like is something to chew on, not good in the sense of morally good, but good in the sense of like if one of the prison guards kills Percy and then they cover it up. That provide and then they still kill John Coffey, who is innocent. That is a parallelism that is uh in, in a realistic parallelism, just to be honest with you, that is bone deep difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Instead, John Coffey says in this book, yeah, I think I'm ready to die anyway. Yeah. My life has been hell constantly. So I think I'd rather be executed than like escape prison. Mm-hmm. With the help of my good friend. Boss Edgecombe. Right. The whole thing's fucked. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, and you're, you're talking about here about parallelisms and what the parale- parallelisms could have been. Uh, you know, this is this is, I think, uh, a way of maybe diagnosing uh, the problem with the novel you know, big picture is that it is interested in parallelisms, but not those. Right. Because the uh, mm-hmm. actual parallel to coffee uh, is the central character of the next chunk of the reading, the mouse on the mile. That's right. Mr. Jingles. Right. Uh, <laughs> rather than kind of, I think, digging into um, maybe history and practice here. Uh, King is getting very literary or like a literary is maybe not the right term, but um, he's trying to let the the fiction do the work. Right. Sort of the the yeah. imagination of the fiction because uh rather than you know say you know having brutal kill someone and then they cover it up or whatever uh rather than doing that something that's really difficult to chew on uh the novel is ultimately more interested in providing a kind of um poetic uh, thing to chew on, a kind of poetic contrast, uh, which are these parallel characters of Mr. Jingles and John Coffey. And these are both characters that are built on uh, extremity and irony. Irony not meaning uh, the saying the opposite of what you mean, but irony in the sense of the unexpected. So what if we had this huge, looming, stereotypical, uh, terrifying black man who was actually a gentle giant and, moreover, uh, an accused murderer who was actually possessed of powers of healing and uh, regeneration and so on and so forth, right? Uh, That's the irony there. Like, what if this thing that looks so bad actually contained within it uh, the, the, you know, utmost divine spark? Um, that com- uh, sort of uh, contrasted with, paralleled with Mr. Jingles, who is tiny, small, like a pest, a rodent, uh, whatever, um, but uh, possessed of an uncanny intelligence uh, and kind of like insight and sort of ingenuity in a way that, again, is ironic and is not becoming of what the image is. Uh, and, and this is kind of what I've called in uh, maybe I think the episode on Thinner, right? This, this kind of hologram problem uh, where King is like dealing Totally, it feels like in the realm of representation rather than like thinking about um, the reality, right? Like this is it, he's working with uh, we, we already mentioned that this is part of a genre of like prison story, as was Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, right? This is an old uh, 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 sort of little subgenre of fiction that King is very familiar with. And so he's like playing with the images from the these genres and like, you know, things outside of that genre, right? Literary images and representations more broadly. Um, but he like, ultimately what the book comes down on is like, well, uh, 
God does, this is not actually all the book has to say about God, but in this specific instance, right, in kind of the parallelism of Mr. Jingles and John Coffey, uh, the, the book is just like, well, uh, appearances may be deceiving. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like God has it in his infinite power to make a mouse really smart and charming and to make a, a, a terrifying black person actually really nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and we keep using the word parallelism. It literally just means two things happening simultaneously that that uh, parallel one another, right? That mirror one another or have some sort of uh, inherent structural relationship to one another. Right. Uh, because coffee also parallels like there, there's actually kind of three things running. Right. This is the same thing that Billy the Kid is doing. Right. Uh, he pretends to be. In, you know, uh, doped up or whatever. And he's, in fact, incredibly clever. He pretends to be asleep and he's grabbing people and murdering them. Whatever, right. Right. Uh, he pretends to be a barn hand and he's not. He's duplicitous. Right. Um, and again, appearances can be deceiving. Mm-hmm. You can appear to be perfectly fine walking around and uh, it hurts to pee. Yeah. So uh, the other big thing from probably the first three chunks of the reading here, Two Dead Girls, Mouse on the Mile, and Coffee's Hands, uh, I think, yeah, I think Coffee's Hands still has this going on. Paul Edgecombe is suffering from a terrible urinary tract infection uh, that we get a lot of descriptions of scattered over over these three little volumes uh listener if you're a a a frequent drop in here and you have been listening in the past couple episodes you may have noticed uh we're kind of bringing up people peeing a lot and i just want to uh join you in that observation the past couple books it feels like have have come up on urination as a topic uh in a way that just seems Notable. I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. It's nineteen forties at this time. Yeah, you, know, you start thinking more about how often you pee and why. Yeah. <laughs> I the uh, someone sent us a message on Patreon. Sorry, I didn't respond to the message. I did read it. Uh, but that in in King's American Vampire backup stories that he wrote. Uh huh. Apparently, vampires peeing blood is also in that. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's way later. It's 20 years later, but that's still funny to me. Um, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of peeing going on here and there are people having insomnia. Paul Edgecombe also has insomnia. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, mouse on the mile, like that basically introduces Mr. Jingles who starts out as just like this mouse who, uh, they see on the mile. Uh, he's very clever. He'll take treats from them or whatever. Uh, Percy wants to kill him because Percy's a shit. Uh, does not succeed, and then Mr. Jingles is actually named by Delacroix, the the Cajun uh, convict, um, who is also maybe possibly like uh, uh, intellectually disabled in some way, but uh, he takes the uh, mouse as a pet, and they become fast friends. Like, the little mouse is, like, you know, his joy in life. And Paul, as the narrator, remarks a couple of times that it almost feels like Mr. Jingles was put uh there to meet Delacroix, like that there was like some sort of fadedness there about uh, those two coming together. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of um, like Mr. Jingles knew that Delacroix would come, you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of weird stuff going on with that uh, that I, I don't really know what to do with. Um, Yeah, then the, I kind of by that it was when the gang's all together, right? Coffee comes in. 
Yep. The story's told a little bit out of order, but yeah, yeah, it's a little, little chopped and screwed. Uh, but then, you know, the, the first kind of like astonishing thing that coffee does is he cures Paul's urinary tract infection. Yeah. By grabbing him on the crotch. Yep. Um, but if that happens, he, he then like opens his mouth and a bunch of bugs shoot out and then like evaporate. Yeah. It's rad. Yeah. It's, it's cool. pretty cool. Uh, it's and, like extremely cool to like suck the evil out of stuff and then blow it back out of your body. Yeah, it's, it's, it was a weird image. Did you notice? Um, and I'm glad that I saw it. It's really only because we watched the movie recently. Uh, that because don't the things uh the mist bugs don't they disintegrate? Uh, I think so. Something disintegrate. I was thinking about that. Also, I watched the movie last night. We'll talk about that, you know, in its mm-hmm. own episode, patreon.com slash range touch. But I was thinking, too, about like the weird uh, uh connection there between these stories. Mm, interesting. But but yeah, so we, that's when we're really kind of introduced to like John Coffey is presented as just kind of like out of it a little bit. Right. Maybe he's got something going on. Um, and this is where it's like, oh, he's got magical powers. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I think it's in uh, Coffee's hands also that Percy does ultimately uh, stomp on the mouse, or maybe it's the next one. The next book is called The Bad Death of Edouard Delacroix. Uh, the point is, eventually, Percy does kill that mouse, being a shit, uh, and Coffee resurrects the mouse. And uh, whereas Paul was the only witness to his own healing, uh, all the other guards on the block see the mouse getting resurrected, and that's... Uh, when the plot really kicks in because uh, it can't just be this like weird thing that Paul is sitting on. It becomes this question for the guards of like, well, what, what the hell are we doing here? Like, what do we do with this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's at the end of coffee's hands where Mr. Jingle is, is murdered. Oh yes. It's a cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger. That, yeah. Okay. Two things I got to say. The action writing in this book is really good. Mm-hmm. Stephen King is not necessarily great at action writing and telling you events that occur in an interesting way. He's really great on this one. Like when Wild Bill comes in and, you know, they're uh, he's got the the Barry Pepper, Dean Stanton. Mm-hmm. I had to look up the movie. Uh, Barry Pepper, who played by Barry Pepper. Well, he's got him around the throat with the chain. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 Paul Edgecombe's got the gun trained on him, but he can't shoot because Dean's in the way. That's cool. Like, it's mm-hmm. a good little scene. And, uh, you know, he gets clonked on the old noodle. Um, but, uh, but that, and then the cliffhangers for all of them are really good. Yeah. No, he, he knows how to write a serial novel. That's part of, I think, I think that's part of the reason why it moves so breezily is like King knows he has to, he knows how a serial novel has to work, which is like, it's the first two paragraphs. Let me catch you up a little bit with what happened last time. Uh, and also I left you on a point where I had like intrigued you, right? There was a mystery and now I need to follow up on that. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, bad death of Edward Delacroix. This is past the midpoint of the novel uh, because uh, Billy the Kid, Billy Wharton, he uh, grabs Percy at one point, like grabs him through the bars and Percy is a coward. Uh, he gets really scared and uh, uh, Wharton makes a bunch of like uh ribald like homophobic or like you know sort of queer panic kind of insinuations about him i think he also gooses him uh and uh 
Percy ends up peeing his pants, which makes everyone else laugh at him. But in particular, it makes Delacroix laugh at him. Uh, And that means that Percy is holding a grudge against Delacroix. He has argued uh, with Paul into getting uh, kind of the lead spot on the next execution, which happens to be Delacroix, because uh, the kind of promise is, if you let me run the show one time, then I'll put in my transfer to Briar Ridge which is a, 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 a mental hospital, and you won't have to deal with me anymore. Uh, and then Percy ends up using the opportunity uh, that he has given to botch the execution. There's a, a, a sponge that they soak in brine that they put on top of the he- on top of the head of the person being executed, which like conducts electricity directly to the brain and makes the, the death happen much faster and more you know mm-hmm. humanely, uh, however we want is to this, think. Uh, is this real? I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't well, surprise me. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, what, 1930s? Yeah. Electric chair. It tried to autofill electric guitar. 1930s <laughs> electric chair. Uh, Woody Guthrie. Sponge. Wet. This is from Stack Exchange. Okay. How much does wet sponge matter in electrocution process? In Stephen King's novel, The Green Mile, and its film adaptation, one of the characters is getting electrocuted. Before the execution, one of the correction officers, correction officers, that's funny, correction officers, instead of wetting the sponge, placed under electric's, electric chair's cap, left it dry, turning Delacroix's execution into a torturous burning, instead of a usually quick and effective death. And the question is, is that true? Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole, this is the answer. This person, the answer is by someone claiming to have a degree in medical physics. Okay. The whole issue with electrodes in medicine is that there needs to be a good electrical contact between the skin and the item transferring the current. Otherwise, burns may occur. The aim is to have a low resistance at the point of contact. Um, uh, this is why conducting gel is used in a clinical setting. Yeah, we know about that. Thus, it seems a logical reason for the wetting of the sponge, a high resistance item between the current supplier and the skin will generate lots of heat. So you wish to minimize this by using a good conductor of electricity, like water. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two cases where that has occurred, mm-hmm. um, where where people seem to have been burned very severely as part of the, the execution process. Uh, and in one case, they used a synthetic sponge, yeah, which beefed it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm seeing that now. Weirdly enough, uh, uh, I'm seeing a, a one of the... A case happened in Florida in 1997 uh, where there was a malfunction and it was related to the dry sponge. Well, there you go. Yep. Oh, my God. You think they read the book and did it on purpose? I don't know. Right. God. Uh, Jesus. I know. Uh, uh, Anyhow. uh, Hey, I'm just going to go on a limb here. Mm hmm. I don't think we should do this. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's a mark of a great society. I don't think so either. I don't think we should be. Ele- I don't think we should be running electrocution through the the brains and bodies of human beings. Period. <sighs> Ever, even to save your life. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, in, in the, but yeah, just I think this the whole thing is bad. The I'm just you know, it's maybe not shocking, but I think it's a bad idea. Anyway, it's not go, shocking. Go um, yeah. Uh. Uh. So. Uh, I didn't mean to make that pun. That is funny. <laughs> uh, so Delacroix, uh, his execution is botched. It's like horrifying. 
Uh, it's some real Stephen King shit. By it the is. Way. It is. His, like face melts off. He 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 gets Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes, he does. Yeah. Uh, we get all those descriptions. Uh, they're pissed at Percy about it. Um, and then that sets us up for the next part, which is Night Journey. So, uh, by this point, and this is important to note, uh, by this point, uh, Paul has figured out that coffee is innocent and not just like, oh, he got healed. And so he knows that coffee is like, <laughs> uh, he, he's so good and so pure and so powerful that how could he be a murderer? No, like Paul has done the research. Like he's done, there's like a whole little detective story that happens in here where he realizes, uh, the way that coffee talks about, uh, his powers is like, uh, you know, I helped it. Right. And he realizes like, oh, what he said when they found him with the corpses of those girls was I couldn't help it. Uh, and then he starts sort of digging around and he puts together, uh, uh, you know, a, a the case that, oh, coffee, like there's all this stuff about coffee doesn't know how to tie his own shoes. Mm-hmm. And so therefore he could not have tied uh, or like, yeah, he couldn't have tied a package or something in a certain way and like untied it in order to like distract the dog that was guarding the girls. And uh, again, it's like a detective story, right? There's just all these like little incidental details that actually suggest coffee was not the person who took the girls from the porch, but that they were overlooked because of the circumstances under which he was found and the racism of the search party that found him. Um, so, uh, yeah. as part, it, oh, it, I can't believe you're alighting the sausage based <laughs> claims that are made yeah. here. Yeah. He had, he had a, a, a meal tied up in a little package mm-hmm. and he had used sausages to kill the dog, but the packages were tied up afterward. Right. How could he have tied the package? Is the, the most tortured way of getting there. It, yeah. You can tell this thing was written, you know, like in sequence. <laughs> That's the thing you would go back and like smooth out, I think, if you had the opportunity to. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we have the the, the sausage evidence, uh, at which point um, Paul kind of devises as a way of hopefully getting coffee freed. Hey, what if we snuck him out of prison and used him to heal the warden's wife? Because, again, the warden has, uh, you know, kind of a little subplot that's been recurring. Uh, she's she starts out. She's having headaches. You know, this is also the dark half. Um, she's having headaches. Uh, and then they're like using this fancy new X-ray machine on her cranium. And they found out she has a tumor and it's really deep and it's inoperable and it's just getting worse. Uh, so, uh uh, Paul decides he he gets the other uh, guards to go in with him and they sneak coffee out. Uh, but in order to do this, they do two things. One, they drug the hell out of Wharton because he's, you know, there like he would be a witness if they released coffee. So they drug him, put him out. Um, and then they under the guise and it's not even kind of under the guise. It's kind of a two birds, one stone situation uh, to uh you know, get back at Percy for what he did. Uh, they tie him up in a straight jacket and they put him in their padded room, right? The restraint room. That's like their solitary confinement. Yep. Um, uh, they throw him in there and then they sneak coffee out. They take him to the house where the warden is. Uh, there's like a brief little standoff there with the warden thinking that, you know, they're like old enemies that have come to kill him, right? He's a prison warden. It's the 1930s. Like people show up at your house at two 30 in the morning. It, not hard to uh, get paranoid. Um, but then this is where it gets really weird in the uh, uh, the whole thing. It becomes an exorcism novel. 
uh, because Paul like describes uh, uh, Melinda as looking like she's possessed. Uh, uh, and he says in the text, he's like, I'm not saying she was possessed, but <laughs> were she possessed? She, she was cursing a lot. Right. Well, and that's the, the warden says, like the tumors pressing on her brain and making her curse. Uh, but then when they like get up to the house, she's uh, cursing like, you know, uh, uh, Reagan in The Exorcist. Right. Just like vulgarities and like, uh, uh, you know, uh, urging them all to like have sex with her. And then when she sees coffee, all these racial slurs. Um so coffee heals her, uh, but unlike previous times when he's healed people, um, he doesn't uh, spit the bugs out. He, they're like stuck in him, it seems like, and it looks like he's going to die. So they take him back to the mile, uh, at which point they they put him back in his cell. They let Percy out of the uh, restraining room. Uh, he, he acts kind of like he's, you know gonna uh, try to save face about it but then as he's walking by coffee's cell coffee grabs him uh exhales all of the evil sickness bugs into percy's mouth percy then walks up to where wharton is still in his cell like just waking up and he shoots wharton six times and then he exhales all the sickness bugs that uh, uh evaporate uh, when they were taking Coffee out, there was a point where Wharton grabbed uh, Coffee's arm. He was like drugged. And he was just like, where are you going? Like grabbed him through the bars. And there was a clearly a moment for Paul. Like Paul sees this. There was like a, a, a moment of recognition or understanding for Coffee. And he doesn't put together until just now somehow what it was, which is that Wharton is the one who killed the two girls. And coffee is like in this weird roundabout way exercised revenge, except I'm not sure if we can call it revenge because it's very unclear whether or not he's conscious of what he's done or like if he could even possibly control what he has done. Nevertheless, in kind of like the, the broader plot logic, that's how it balances out. Right. No, I think he definitely knows what he's done. OK, um, if if only because the the language we get when um, uh, Billy the Kid touches him. Mm-hmm. And he like turns and he has the realization of what's going on. I yeah, absolutely. and then he chooses to hold it in. Yeah, right. Like I, I don't know the reason because he can't get to Wharton, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like they're in two different prison cells. There's no way he can, and he wouldn't. He's like avowedly not physically nonviolent, right? Right. So yeah, I think he does. I think that the moral universe of the story has to turn him into a murderer at the end. Yeah. I don't know why. Like, I don't think it needs to work that way. I think there's a lot of other things, but I think that's how it works is it's like he is ready to die. And the moral universe of the story still holds right. Like the mm-hmm. the you go to old Sparky because you're a killer mm-hmm. and he is a killer at the end, even though he made another guy do it. Right. I don't think that's right. I think there's a million ways you could get around that, but I do think that's kind of the sh- if if that's not the moral universe, and by which I mean if that's not kind of a uh, an intended structure, then structurally that's what occurs, right. right? Like murderers go to old Sparky. Everyone else killed somebody, like definitively. Yeah. Delacroix uh murdered a young woman and then burned down an apartment building, killed a bunch of people in there. Uh, Billy the Kid murdered a bunch of people in a hostage situation and also these little girls. Um, the Bitterbuck, the the chief, he uh, uh, crushed a guy's head with a cement block. Yeah. Um, right. So it's it's just definitive. Right? right. Like people who go there are murdered. And that's Paul Edgecombe's whole thing is it's like, ultimately, it's a job. But I am sending people to hell and yeah. I believe in hell. Yeah. And that that never wavers. Mm hmm. 
I mean, he sends John Coffey to hell, right? Yeah, I mean, by his own understanding, yeah. And John Coffey's a murderer. I mean, maybe this is where the ambiguity is, right? Like, mm-hmm. maybe if, if if what you're, if you're kind of read on it, right, which is like, well, did, did he know, right? Like, is he yeah. a murderer? Did he do it on purpose, right? Or is it justified because it's justice? Um, which it probably is, right? Like, within the, within the story. Um Billy the Kid, he's going to die anyway, and Percy sucks. Like, he is yeah. going to, to torment people for the rest of their lives. He he is going to hell in this moral universe, right? Right. Um, and so he he is torturing the, the least of us in terms of, like, their capability. He's about to go to a mental institution mm-hmm. and, and torment human beings who have no opportunity to recourse. I don't mean the least of us in terms of capability or whatever, right? I mean, structural power relationships, right? They have no recourse to him whatsoever. Right. So, you know, maybe that's the thing. And and so that's maybe how the novel can get out of the thing of like, well, people who go to old Sparky, they're murderers and they go to hell. John Coffey didn't kill anybody. He's oh, just being killed. I know what right? we I, I yeah. yeah, go ahead. So go ahead. I, I know what we have to bring into conversation here. It's a thing that I skipped over from the midpoint where uh, Paul is doing all of his research. He goes to the county where uh, uh, Coffey was arrested mm-hmm. um, and he interviews the the uh reporter who did all of the coverage of that um and the reporter is an interesting character because he uh mentions that he went to college up in bowling green he he's he he presents himself as kind of the enlightened southerner uh where he's like you know slavery was bad i don't think we should bring slavery back it was an institution that we should get rid of and also uh, uh he says that uh black people uh, he compares them to a dog that he had that was the sweetest dog that was, uh, you know, the family dog was always great with his kids. And then one day, for no apparent reason, the dog snapped and bit uh, his son's face and like took out his eye um, and all this stuff. And he says mm-hmm. that this is what uh, black people are like, is that they can seem uh, as sweet as possible. And then out of nowhere, if the mood strikes them. They're going to do some violence. Uh, and it's weird because he says that and it's in the next volume, I think, that Paul uh, in the narration calls out that is bad. Right. He says that that is faulty logic, that it is like a, a um, Hammersmith's prejudice uh, and that it's not something he agrees with. And yet uh, this is, in fact, kind of the form that Coffee's end takes, where he is this gentle giant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then out of nowhere, he does, in fact, commit this murder. The, the, the comparison they make is they say that he used Percy like a gun. Um, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so like and, and it's different in the sense that absolutely like Wharton has it coming and it's kind of like revenge from Coffee for the crime that Coffee has been convicted of. Yeah, it's it's justice. It is right. divine justice that the that the the evil of amongst us the unrepentant evil will be destroyed and and then we get explicitly like the 1990s king metaphysics right that Mm -hmm. that uh whatever is in john coffee is the white yes yeah uh uh paul cannot think of anything other than the force that he experiences as white yeah um yeah i mean you know it, it sets up interesting some stuff right like um if if Roland and the the Cotet, right, which we're mm-hmm. going to return to soon, if Roland and the Cotet are like running through the the midworld, blasting dudes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's okay. Yeah, that's fine, right? Like that's just 
Mm-hmm. Kill, killing Gasher is cool. Yeah. It's totally, totally fine. Killing TikTok man. Totally fine. Yeah. Um, and so it is interesting uh, in terms of like, well, like maybe maybe it's just like maybe right. John Coffee doing that stuff is a OK. It is interesting to think about this in terms of like we should return to these ideas uh, when we get to like uh, from a Buick eight or Hearts in Atlantis. I mm-hmm. guess Hearts in Atlantis will come first. Right. But like yeah. the similar kind of big me- and I guess this is where the Gnostic thing comes from, too. Right. Like there's a big metaphysics and there's like a little morality. And mm-hmm. like Paul Edgecombe is in the little morality, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the big metaphysics, right? The 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 hyper morality, it it's uh, there's some different scales there, right? Uh, what what the universe finds just and what mere you know evangelical Christians find just are different things, is what yes. the narrative is saying. Yes, yes, I think that's absolutely it, right? That there is um, like I think uh the the kind of angle that I think King is trying to work here, the thing he's trying to return to is like, oh yes, there is like divinity and order in the universe, uh, but it is something beyond the parochial concerns of organized religion and in particular like Christianity. Yeah, down home mainerism. Right. Uh, uh, little did you know that you walk up to the pearly gates. And uh, it's that old guy from Pet Cemetery there. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, hi, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I think, you know, this, we've wondered about like, you know, King's popularity and his user base. Um, I don't think that this is too dissimilar. His, his user base. His user base. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Kingian user Stephen base. King, Stephen King's the best free to play game on the yeah. earth. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it's like a gotcha and you're hoping for uh, uh, dark tower connections in each one. Yep. Um, uh, but like the the reader base uh, is what I'm trying to get at is I think um, the the vision of the world and of religion that ends up being presented here, particularly as we get into the last volume, which is Coffee on the Mile. And we get into, you know, John Coffee would rather die than escape prison because being alive as him is so horrifying and so horrible. And he is so put upon and he is conscious of all the world's evils and all the world's sins, uh, literally Christ-like in that way, right? He is put, yeah. he is, yeah. he, he is being put forth as a mediator, uh, you know, the middle term between like, uh, the mortal realm of, uh, you know, sin and transgression, whatever. And like the supernatural, like cosmic realm where these things are witnessed or adjudicated or what have you um and he doesn't like it uh because it doesn't make any sense it's like senseless and so he would rather die uh anyway this is all me saying that like uh uh, what i said earlier about um like that there is like the the order of the world that king is describing looks a lot like christianity in some ways but is also being posited as being something that is like beyond christianity and therefore probably like more fundamental to the reality of the world right mm-hmm. um that is like not too dissimilar i think from like a, a lot of religious thinking that i witnessed in my family growing up right this idea of like you know i think basically that there is something going on in the world there's a force or an entity or whatever right that we might call a god that there is like a plan or a providence to things, but, you know, a deep skepticism of anything that tries to uh, systematize that and particularly tries to create a structure wherein like a, uh, say, priest class or something has an authority uh, as opposed to kind of the spontaneous feelings and experiences of uh, uh, the person on the street believer. Mm-hmm. Michael right. Watts is hyper Protestantism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the I really like the the final book. I you could you could fuck this up. Mm-hmm. 
You know, like everything that we have said that has been a complaint, right, is please remember it is couched within the thing we said at the beginning, which is like the event logic of this thing like clicks along. It just it keeps on going. All of these characters are really fun to read about. You know, they're interesting to know what they're doing. And the way that it is written is electric, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's just going, I, I keep punning on this. Yep. I'm not, uh-huh. I'm not I wasn't going to say anything I, about that one. I, 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 I caught myself that time. I promise I'm not trying to. But it is, I almost said it's like lightning. I'm really, uh, uh, it's it's uh, like dense snow falling <laughs> for several hours. <laughs> Uh, it's like coming in like sleet. Uh, but no, it just got, I mean, I read half of this book sitting on the couch like in an afternoon, just all in a whack. Um, mm-hmm. We weren't even going to record today. And I was like, actually, I finished this book. We can go ahead and do it. Um, but uh, because I just sat down and did the whole thing. The final few chapters as they're prepping for coffee's execution and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he begins King, but also Edgecombe, you know, King King writing as Edgecombe reflecting on the event. Uh, starts talking about how basically everyone dies. Yeah. Like every character in the book is, it is explained to us how they die eventually. Mm-hmm. And it's just naturally done. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the end of stand by me. Right. Where right. Like right, everyone died young and weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> right. He works at the, the uh, electric plant downtown. There's none of that. It's just like, yeah, he, uh, he got stabbed to death. You know, he got stabbed in the throat. That's what happens to Dean, right? Yeah. The one they were so protective of. He gets he gets stabbed in the throat by another inmate in a different part of the prison. Um, uh, brutal dies of a heart attack while watching wrestling on TV, right? It's mm-hmm. banal, like, normal deaths, right? Everyone has a death waiting on them. That, yeah. That's, you know, kind of told us. And I really like that. Stylistically, it works really well. And you can feel, I think, some of the writerly impulses from um, Gerald's game and from... Uh, Dolores Claiborne here mm-hmm. like it's it's a kind of matter of a fact matter of fact style that I think is is really really fun to read mm-hmm. yeah no it's uh, uh oh I forgot to mention actually from the night journey part one of the important things that coffee says is that he passes the electric chair and he says they're all still in there yes which is like ooh, right like that's Danny looking at the overlook right like they're yeah. all still in there yeah um so yeah, coffee on the mile. Uh, coffee is executed. He he, you know, again like goes out with uh, grace as uh, uh, the mediator of all the world's sins. They don't put the um. There's like a black uh sackcloth that they put on over the head, you know, for the dignity of the person being executed. But he won't take that because he's scared of the dark, and so he's executed without the mask. Uh, and as you say, uh, then we move into. Uh, kind of like what happened to everyone because like the prison closed like the very next year or like that it's like they moved operations to a yeah. different location or something and uh you know we get kind of all the uh this person did that and here's how they died and this person did this and here's how they died and uh eventually we get to the fact that paul is the only one who hasn't died um but he did he has witnessed plenty of deaths and there's like a uh uh a thing that's been sort of alluded to in the past, uh, how his wife and one of his daughters died, uh, is that they were in a, um, no, it's a, just his wife. I thought one of his daughters died there too. No, cause they're on the way to her wedding. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Anyway, and that's the only place that their kids are mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> like, like all that. But no, yeah, just his wife, I believe. Okay. So anyway, the point is there's like a disastrous bus accident, right? And like 70 something people die. Only four people live. Three of them are seriously injured. One of them is Paul and he has like a scratch on his arm. Um, and he finds his wife uh, dying. She's had severe head trauma and he like witnesses her die and he thinks he sees John Coffey standing underneath an overpass or something. And, you know, it's raining. He's like screaming to the heavens, like, why has this happened, et cetera, et cetera. And then as he's talking about this, he also reveals that over the past 70 something years or whatever, he's never gotten a cold. He hasn't gotten sick, blah, 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 like coming to the realization that when John Coffey like healed him and there's another point later where Coffey like takes his hand again and like, you know, gives him some juice. Uh, Coffey did something to him. That means he's going to have an unusually long lifespan. So it turns out he's 104 years old and the lady in the uh, retirement community that he's been talking to, she she's like in her eighties and she assumes he's also in his eighties uh, and she's reading she's reading the the same memoirs that we're reading. And she's the one who's like, you talked as if you had two adult daughters in 1932 like that. The math on that doesn't work. And he's like, I'm 104 years old. Um, I'm ancient. Yeah. Uh, and, and then what happens, Michael? <sighs> well, what's then the she cherry died. On, what's the what's the cherry on top? No, she dies oh. after this. She, she I know we do. But we also we get the presentiment. We get to know that she dies, too, that he outlives yeah. her, too. Yeah. Um, so, uh, he she takes her- like right after the book is over. Yeah. It's like three months later. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, he takes her, he has a little surprise. He's been taking walks and we know all about his walks that he's been taking around the community. Uh, there's a particular like orderly named, I think Brad Dolan, uh, who's, another piece of shit like he's another version of Percy Wetmore right a person who gets into kind of uh, a position of authority and kind of an institution and just uses that to power trip Um, and he's been giving Paul some crap about this about Paul's like walks where you're going old man Polly he calls him Polly right Uh, infantilizes him Um, so then uh, Paul takes Elaine that's the woman's name he takes her out to like this old cabin that's sort of like on the edge of the grounds of the community and uh, takes her inside and shows her the cigar box where Mr. Jingles old and gray still lives and still does his little trick where he like fetches a spool and everything. And my God, uh, how, how magical. Uh, but then also Mr. Jingles dies immediately during that scene because Brad Dolan catches them and they think that there's going to be a confrontation and he's like, why would I care that you weirdos came down here to look at a dead mouse? And then they turn around and Mr. Jingles is dead on the floor. Yeah, I guess I did say it would be so easy to fuck it up and Stephen King doesn't. Yeah. And he does kind of fuck it up because <laughs> this is such a who cares? Not like Mr. Jingles coming back. I can see a world where that's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that is interesting that they, that there's something about the long after effects of being touched by John Coffey that brings people together. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mouse sought him out. That should be clear. Like Mr. Yeah. Jingles, like disappeared from the prison and literally, uh, like at what, uh, at some point before he started writing his memoirs, Paul went out and found Mr. Jingles on the back porch. <laughs> yeah. Just there he is. Yeah. Um, but so they're like playing with Mr. Jingles. And he's having a good old time. He's just tired. And then 
this asshole shows up and, and the Paul Edgecombe looks at it. And when he looks back, Mr. Jingles is just dead. Yeah. And then the guy's like, hey, quit coming in here. Like, stop it. Yeah. And then he leaves. Yep. And it's just it's such like a non whatever. Like she had already, uh, you know, it's a subplot that really does not matter. But she basically did the same thing to this evil orderly that uh, that that Percy was doing to him. Right. She's like, my grandson is the speaker of the House of Georgia. Yeah. Mm hmm. And like, he'll get you fired. And that's like funny. That's another parallelism, right? It's good. It's fun. And he's banished. Just let him be banished. And then let Mr. Jingles die in your hands, right? Like, give it the give it the, the good death, right? right? We already had one good death. Mm-hmm. Good death. Big quotation marks, right? But in the, in the novel, as it was presented to us, a good death. John Coffey wants to die. He gets the death that he wants. And everyone else feels damned for having done it. Great. Mm-hmm. Sounds good to me. Okay. Now, Mr. Jingles, he's literally going to die off camera. Yeah. <laughs> While we're looking at some asshole who's like, I'm locking this door. Quit making out out here, old people. Right. It's just it's just a, a nothing, you mm-hmm. know, which is which is unfortunate to me. Yeah. Uh, and then that's kind of uh, the end of the novel where Paul is the last one standing still and like reflecting on how lonely he is and uh, how you know, like the, the the movie makes this very explicit, but like, am I being punished for what I did to John Coffey? Yeah, I hope so. Right. Uh, like that. And, and again, like the, the horror of death and the horror of life intermingle here. We're like, you know, death is coming. Uh, and it's very interesting, right, that Paul uh, says, you know, like, I, I know that I am killing people like I am killing people who deserve it and they're going to hell. And then like what he ends up getting is a long life where he doesn't know what's at the end of it because he doesn't know where the end is anymore. Right. And uh, both he and Brutal. Mm hmm. What a terrible nickname, by the way. Yeah. Um, but uh, they both quit. Yes. They both go to do different stuff. I forget what Paul Edgecombe does, but it's something different. Yeah. I think I'm I, br- brutal. Again, that is a bad name. They should just call him Brute. Like, <laughs> that's so much more a thing you would call a person. Uh, I know he goes into, like, juvenile corrections or something. Juvenile corrections? Yeah. Um, well, that's the book, huh? Yeah, that's the book. Uh, uh, an interesting thing. Uh, it's got, you know, the highs and lows of Stephen King all in one package. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's got more highs than it does low. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it is organized in principle around, you know, something just sucks. Right? <laughs> like, this is not good. Um, but. The the way that that not good is, good God, I was about to say executed. Jesus uh, Christ, mm-hmm. uh, activated, uh-huh. but accomplished. the 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 book is an accomplishment, and it is fusing together a lot of stuff from the Dark Half and some of the stuff from Needful Things, uh, the kind of detective stuff that we've really liked you mm-hmm. know, over the past little bit. Um, and it and it's doing some other stuff too. You know, we talked extensively about in Rose Matter that. There's the kind of like uh, serial serial killer explosion, you know, media about serial killers, Ted Bundyism stuff going on in there with the husband. That's Billy the Kid here, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, the the whole thing about Ted Bundy, especially in the '90s, I remember this so clearly, is the like fixation on him as someone who could be like a regular guy and then like be a murderer who's like you know 
killing people with a hammer or whatever, right? Like these mm-hmm. truly heinous acts of, of violence against other people. And that's like the scariness of of Ted Bundy as a figure himself, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's such a specific kind of not, it's not really a media panic, just a fixation, right? And that that's exactly how Wild Bill is presented here, right? That he can he can be whatever he needs to be in any given situation. He 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 literally in one day helps put up a barn and then goes and uh, robs a bank the same day. And, right. You know, these are not different for him. So there's more of that here, too. So it's yet again, you know, I, I think it's going to be. Well, one effect of the show is it's hard for us to find things we haven't seen already. Yeah. You know, just because mm-hmm. like he's written so many words or read at this point, what, millions of words by Stephen King? Oh, yeah. Um, And so that's one thing. But the other is that I think from here on out that we're not going to see that much that's new. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have the Stephen King bag of tricks almost entirely. I think maybe the last thing that we get is the detective fiction edition, the crime novel edition. Mm-hmm. I guess the only thing we haven't seen so far super clearly is what we're going to get in bag of bones, mm. which is which is a different kind of like affective register for King. I don't know if the content is different, right, in terms of like what he's talking about and the feelings he has. I mean, that's a dead wife novel. Yeah. A lot of dead wives and Stephen King, but the way that that's approached is is quite a bit different. Mm-hmm. But it's been a long time since I've read it, so I can't say that for sure. Yeah. I got a little treat for you. Oh, for me? For you. You remember last episode we talked about uh, Harold Bloom? Uh-huh. You want to give us the one-sentence gloss on who Harold Bloom is again? Uh, big, self-important professor man uh, gets angry that people talk about books that he doesn't like. Shakespeare guy. Yeah, Shakespeare guy. In particular. Guy. In particular yeah. right. Big defender of the traditional literary canon. Well, Harold Bloom has a series of books called Bloom's Modern Critical Views. Okay. Which are essentially edited volumes by a bunch of different academics that maybe is actually edited by Bloom. He at least writes an introduction to all of them. Okay. And last, last time, we discovered this book existed, and mm-hmm. I immediately ordered it. Okay, great. I have it in my hands. Uh-huh. Now, other authors that um, Bloom's Modern Critical Views have been dedicated to. Just I'm just giving you a sense here. Okay. Emily Dickinson. All right. Um, Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh-huh. Um, Dante Alighieri. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> of the famous Dante. Mm-hmm. So famous, we just really kind of kind of like Prince in that, or Cher. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Arthur Miller. Uh-huh. Moliere. Sylvia Plath, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of people. Right. In the genre, kind of, you know, the Brontes get their own. In the genre world, we got like Ray Bradbury, we got Margaret Atwood, you know, mm-hmm. so they branch. It's not just like the big capital L literary greats. Yeah. I mean, we got Stephen King. And then we got Stephen King. Okay. So he has a uh, charitably three page introduction to this book. <laughs> And one whole page is taken up by a massive block quote from someone else's book. So really, the and I will say this, the uh, the essays look pretty cool. I am going to read through them. Okay. Um, uh, but I'm, <laughs> I want to read you par- essentially paragraph two. Okay? I'm going to read the okay. whole thing. He's talking about someone else's. He's talking about, he just, he does a big block quote from uh, Mark Edmondson's book, Nightmare on Main Street. Okay. Which is about kind of the the return of the gothic in horror literature, and he and he's talking about King in that. And uh, 
so it's a big long quotation and then Harold Bloom says this on this persuasive account our lust for gothic is a parody of Gnosticism which is a major strand in the American religion uh-huh Stephen King is not at all Gnostic whether in religious persuasion or in temperament Edmondson notes a Wordsworthian strain in King he exalts children and severely distrusts adults I suspect that Mark Twain and not Wordsworth is the source. Many of King's heroes are very diffuse versions of Huckleberry Finn. Although King manifestly derives from many major storytellers uh, in the American tradition, so he's borrowing from them, he has much the same relation to them that television and film scripts frequently possess, a waning out of imaginative energies. (laughs) I find King very hard to read, even when I can discern redeeming social values in his narratives. There are depths beneath, beneath depths, and clearly King is preferable to the sadistic Anne Rice, whose <laughs> fictions are profoundly unhealthy and whose style is even more tedious than King's. Nothing intrinsic in King's work is nearly so important as the overwhelming fact of his popularity. Like television, motion pictures, and computers, King has replaced reading. Hundreds of thousands of American school children who will read nothing else that isn't assigned devour King regularly. They turn to King as their parents resort to Danielle Steele and Tom Clancy. I see no point in deploring this, and yet we ought not to deceive ourselves. The triumph of the genial King is a large emblem of the failures of American education. <laughs> He goes on like that for another two paragraphs. That is classic Harold Bloom. It is. And it's also just wrong as shit. Like, whatever. The moral judgment is silly and goofball, and it's not worth engaging, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Harold Bloom has a framework of the world that is so alien to anything that I consider good or right or true that it's not, it's, you know, there's no point of connection. It's, it's truly a different We both look at the universe and we see something so radically different that we can't even make similar arguments about it. Right. Okay, fine, whatever. But the second part is, is just wrong. <laughs> Stephen King's not at all Gnostic. Right. Well, I mean, that what? it's so funny the that New I York read Times that. Times is saying it. Right. The New York Times review is like, Stephen King is particularly Gnostic lately. Like, <laughs> right. Stephen King exalts children, I guess, in like yeah. one eighth of his books. Right. Uh, in the other, in the other books, there are lots of kids in them. And they suck shit too. They're as bad as he as, as I almost said humans as adults. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. kids, kids are everything that adults are in Stephen King novels. Right. They're the good and the bad. Right. Uh, but that's the I mean, that's Bloom, too. Right. It's like Bloom has a lot of opinions on Gnosticism. It's one of his preoccupations. He builds out an entire uh, theory of literary reference that is named after various movements in, in, in Gnosticism. So oh, I did. I did not know that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, he does. Um, so and he, he, he the I think the one fiction novel he wrote was uh, a sequel. I don't remember the title, but it's a sequel to Lindsay's Voyage to Arcturus, which is like a. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like a, a spaceship travel novel. Right. It's like a Gnostic uh, a science fantasy novel from the 1920s. So <laughs> weird. I didn't I did not know that. Yep. He 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 was fascinated by that book so much that he wrote a sequel that, as far as I can tell, everyone hated, including him. Uh, like television, motion pictures and computers. King has replaced reading. Yep. What a dim view of of other human beings. Absolutely. What, right. what, what just a fucking goblin. Like it, like the fact that anything at all moved beyond how it was held in stasis in I don't know 
1896 or something was... <laughs> by the the landed and worded gentry right uh, uh but anyway that but that, that you know harold bloom not for me mm-hmm. but uh but the book seems pretty cool i am going to read through it uh once i have some time um it's uh, a fairly diverse set of of perspectives on it um there's some history stuff kind of situating king historically that we've done some of on the show uh, there's one essay that's on the readings, the academic readings of Stephen King, which I've remarked on on the show several times, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, there are uh, there's a there's a close reading of Dance Macabre, which seems mm-hmm. like it's going to be pretty fun. And there's quite a few about like Stephen King, just what's up with his ideas about gender. <laughs> OK, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, pretty good. Or it seems good. Seems I good. I can't can't tell you. We'll find out. There's also just a straight up close reading of needful things. I don't know where that's going to go. Well, you see the things they're needful. Uh, That's right. Mm -hmm. There's (laughs) the conclusion. uh, There's a there's an essay called you ready for this? Uh huh. Cars are girls. (laughs) Sexual power and sexual (laughs) panic in Stephen King's Christine. I mean that's true. That's, that's John in the Car- book apparently. Okay. Cars and girls is in the book. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, uh, with that done, do we want to move into some segments. Yeah, let's do a second. Okay, so the first segment is my favorite Kingism. This is the part of the show where we pick uh, some line, word, phrase, whatever, uh, image from whatever we just read that we think is uh, indicative of uh, the strengths of King's prose style. Um. So mine is just the uh, very simple phrase, God replies, I don't care, uh, which is something that comes up in the last book. It's at the end of everything. And Paul is kind of doing his big, long reflection on life and sort of like this is where uh, we get the the strongest God talk. Um, Because Paul reflects at multiple points about like the churches that he went to when he was a kid and sort of like the version of religion that they put forth. And here at the end, he's kind of coming around to uh, his his feelings on it or sort of like what he thinks makes his experience of the world and his notions of the divine distinct. And he has arrived after all of the stuff in the novel that he's talked about on this vision of a God that does what God wants. And because the thing that's precedes this is you say or something like this i'm paraphrasing but you say to god i don't understand and god replies i don't care and uh you know i've talked about this uh at multiple points i guess throughout the show at this at this juncture uh but like this is the thing that i think is really interesting about steve is that he's an extremely popular novelist uh and gets this kind of reputation i think here you know through the darabont adaptation or whatever for this being i mean it is a schmaltzy novel um but it is not in the final instance an uplifting novel uh because this is the note that it ends on which is like why did john coffee get the powers that he got like what on earth was going on what was the point of that why did any of this happen in the way that it did and why have i now lived so long and the answer that paul can come up with is just it doesn't matter god does not care that you don't understand what's going on god is like this ineffable force that is doing what god is doing and it is not going to be pleasant for you or possibly anyone yeah uh it is a fascinating kind of um i don't know uh not i don't know i guess it's a rerun and a preview of what we're gonna get later on Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fascinating that like King is so interested in these questions of 
randomness of random events occurring to you of sometimes shit just happens to human beings in the world and you got to deal with what's dealt with you. Right. And then he gets hit by a van. Mm hmm. In a, in a truly kind of like weird accident, right? Like, right. Just the description. We'll get there when it happens. It's only a few years away. I mean, not in the show. It's like a year and a half away in the show, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, in in four years, three years from the writing of the novel, he's going to be involved in just like something as random as Paul Edgecombe's wife dying. Right. You know, it just just happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and who can know? And, and his body's like obliterated in the process, right? I mean, he's yeah. not left, um, you know, and then he writes Dreamcatcher. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. so there's like, it's kind of a double whammy of bad shit that happens to him. But, <laughs> yes. Um, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's just interesting to me. And I guess that my favorite Kingism is kind of similar to that. This is when they take John Coffey to the warden's wife um, and to do the exorcism or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And you alluded to this earlier, but... Basically, what happens is that the warden comes out on the porch and he's got a gun and everyone freezes. They just can't talk. And John Coffey's walking toward the warden and the warden's going to shoot him, mm-hmm. right? Like straight up. And it's going to like mess all this stuff up. And so uh, and it's going to kill John Coffey, too. And then uh, it says this it's on 317 in my book. John set Harry aside, just picked him up and moved him over and then climbed on the stoop. He stood between Brutal and me, so big he almost pushed us off either side and into Melly's holly bushes. Moore's eyes turned up to follow him the way a person's eyes do when he's trying to see the top of a tall tree. And suddenly the world fell back into place for me. That spirit of discord, which had jumbled my thoughts like powerful fingers sifting through sand or grains of rice, was gone. I thought I also understood why Harry had been able to act when Brutal and I could only stand, hopeless and indecisive, in front of our boss. Harry had been with John. And whatever spirit it is that opposes that other demonic one, it was in John Coffey that night. And when John stepped forward to face Warden Moores, it was that other spirit, something white, that's how I think of it, as something white, which took control of the situation. The other thing didn't leave, but I could see it drawing back like a shadow in a sudden strong light. And it's what I really like about this is like, this is all over King in the 90s here, and it's going to keep showing up into the early 2000s, um, which is just like, the banal moment of human life is uh, constructed by these like big metaphysical white versus the red forces. Mm -hmm. And it's only in retrospect that you realize, Oh my gosh, I was kind of uh, beholden to these things. They, they were doing something to me. And now I recognize by virtue of being saved or being damned. That happens sometimes too, uh, that those two things were at play. And I just, that's just very keen to me at this point. Mm hmm. Uh, if at one point our favorite Kingism might have been sometimes, hey, look, someone's got the shining. <laughs> and this is how we found out this is that that kind of equivalent by this point in the 90s, which is like, hey, the white and the red are here. The right. white and the chaos. Right. Whatever. Yeah. Um, um, the, here they are popping up again. And then they just kind of pass away. Right. Then like other stuff happens for a full chapter. Right. But that's what I like. That's my favorite Kingism. Yeah, uh, well, that sort of ties into what in the Kingiverse, which is where we highlight connections between what we just read and other things and kind of like the broader King continuity or whatever. Uh, Nothing explicit this run. A lot of like metaphysical kind of conceits operating in the background that are very uh, reminiscent of things we've read before. John Coffey having The Shining 
and being able to kind of like hear other people's thoughts constantly, but also hear all of the spirits of the people who have been executed in the electric chair, for instance. Uh, but then we also have what was really striking to me on this reading, um, uh, in the same way that I think like it, it was interesting how fast this happened. Uh, it was like uh, I remember it was in the Salem's Lot episode about the Marston house where it's described as like a battery, right? The, the haunted house is a battery. And you were like, that's like basically how the hotel and the shining works, right? So like the very next book, like just revisits that idea and expounds upon it. Uh, this book, something that's really notable is that uh, Melinda Moores, the warden's wife, uh, she has this brain tumor that's causing her to act very strange. But then, as you mentioned, when Paul gets there, uh, he has this feeling of cosmic kind of forces working on and through them, right? He he feels the white in John Coffey, and he has felt himself being suborned by kind of this other counterforce, this kind of chaotic force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I already mentioned that uh, uh Melinda herself is like swearing and cursing in ways that are very reminiscent of uh, Reagan and the Exorcist or any other kind of like, you know, exorcism story you may you may be familiar with. Um, And then when coffee like heals her, like the house is shaking, right? There's like things moving underground, like something weird is going on that is beyond all the types of healing that he's done before. Uh, And then he takes that sickness back, puts it into Percy. Percy kills Wharton. And then Percy is left catatonic from that point forward. He does end up at the mental hospital, but as a patient rather than as a guard. Yeah, you know that King felt so, uh, Uh so clever there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is interesting that none of these locations are like um, shared locations so far. Yeah, there's something here also I think about. We didn't talk about this much, but the fact that it all takes place in the South and like, I don't know what's going on there. I actually think King is trying to pay homage to Michael McDowell, who did a very long serial novel in the 80s called Blackwater. It's one of my favorites, but um, uh, ends up being like over a thousand pages long, you know, all collected. It's not like wow. the Green Mile. Yeah, and it's like a long Southern Gothic like sort of fantasized like soap opera family history dynasty thing yeah i do think he mentions i think he mentions that book in the intro note oh okay all right that's good i'm glad he he like tipped his hat there because uh, mm-hmm. uh oh yeah uh, he says that he mentions uh neither was immediately aware that it has happened on at least two occasions tom wolf published the first draft of his novel bonfire the vanity serially in rolling stone and michael mcdowell published a novel called blackwater in paperback installments yep yep yeah. And then he actually summarizes it. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, it's a nice thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I uh, uh, Mc, you know, I, I've expounded upon the virtues of McDowell with regard to the elementals, which I think is a good like that's a good one for everyone. But like Blackwater is one of those novels you read it and it feels like I read it and I was like, oh, this feels like it was written for me. Um, it's yeah, just we're going to need some kickbacks on the from the <laughs> McDowell estate. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think uh, you personally have sold something like 10,000 copies of the element. <laughs> it feels like that sometimes. Um, there are staff pick shelves across the nation covered in McDowell works that would never have been there if not for the show. Uh, uh, anyway, um, uh, that was the other, the thing to say then, right? The King of Earth's connection here, uh, this whole thing about like the illness that is within Melinda that may in fact be some kind of demonic presence that, uh, uh, degrades the host the longer it stays in the body and can, can, can jump between bodies and degrade those bodies. Uh, that is like a core conceit for the books that we're about to read, uh, in Desperation and the Regulators. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Light. Tech and ta. Yep, yep. Uh, so we'll learn all about that uh, next month. 
Um, but before yeah, that, we're Etrigan. <laughs> before that, before I, I uh, uh, take us back to the outro, we have one more segment, which is Uncle Stevie's mixtape, where we take all of the songs that were mentioned in what we just read and we review them. I thought we weren't going to have a mixtape for this one. I was I, we were so close to having no songs at all. And then we got a little burst of them and they are all kind of like, well, well, let's do the mixtape. I can't, I can't believe you didn't punish me by making me like review a radio play. <laughs> radio comedy hour which are repeatedly referenced yes they are and all of the songs that are mentioned are like these weird like semi-traditionals or like emerging uh you know like tin pan alley songs that are all public domain uh and they have no artists associated with them it just kind of feels like king was trying to remember what were the things that my grandparents sang to themselves uh, so the first song is called Come Josephine in My Flying Machine. Uh, this is a song that is very clearly written to like cash in on the excitement of the Wright Brothers. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, right. it, it's 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 pretty corny and boring. It's like two stars. I got We're in the Money. <laughs> Famously of We're in the Money. That, yeah. that thing. It It's terrible. One star. <laughs> uh, I have so this is a, a kind of guess on my part I've given myself hesitation blues because there's a point where Paul in his narration marks himself as quoting a song but when I search for that song I don't get the precise thing that he is singing uh, but I get something very similar which is this blues song hesitation blues that's been uh recorded by a handful of people and like many blues songs has a lot of like variations and so on in it uh Anyway, the the version that I uh, reviewed, I went with a Dave Van Rock recording. Uh, it's fine. Two stars. Whatever. This MF loves Dave Van Rock. I'll tell you what. <laughs> this ML. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> the uh, I got Go Tell Aunt Rody, uh, which is also, I guess, a traditional song. I don't actually uh-huh. know where it comes from. You want to hear something funny? Sh- sure. It's the theme to Resident Evil 7. Oh, yes, I know that. That was I remember seeing the trailer for that where they recorded like the uh, a really like ominous uh, yes. version. And it was so funny because the version I always remember is um, Burl Ives, a.k.a. the snowman from the Rudolph Christmas special. Right. <laughs> uh, I listened to the Woody Guthrie versions. Fine. It's like kind of barely a song. Like, OK, yeah, I don't know. It's it's two stars yeah i could go up to three if i needed to you know much like literature uh before a certain point you just don't need to bother with music (laughs) right right you know like we could just agree that like no one needs to read anything before like 1850 (laughs) like go back to ancient times yeah you know uh uh uh, everything before 500 ad Uh that's good you can read all that stuff from 500 AD to 1880? I don't know. Yeah. Do you? They weren't getting getting up to a lot there. Same as music. You know? Yeah, same. I'm, yeah. Put before we get the letters. I'm joking. <laughs> you can go up to... We can go back to 1860 at least. So. <laughs> uh, then the last song is Red River Valley, which is an old cowboy song. Uh, I listened to the Marty Robbins version. Marty Robbins of uh, Big Iron on his hip fame. Um this is Big pretty good. On his head. Yep. Yep. And Red River Valley is a, a pretty good song and Marty Robbins sings it well. So three stars. Okay. Uh, 
And yeah, so I mean, that's been that's been this episode of Just King Things. Just another little reminder, if you like this show, which we are producing and throwing out there into the world for you for free, uh, you can also support us by giving us money and getting bonus episodes in return. You can get those by going to patreon.com slash range touch and backing us uh, for I think, is it five dollars? You get the mm-hmm. Just King Things bonus episodes where we watch film adaptations of not if if not the thing that we just read because not all of them have adaptations uh then some other Stephen King film that we have some thoughts about. And uh, so obviously this month we will be talking about The Green Mile, the 1999 Frank Darabont film with Tom Hanks and Michael Clark Duncan. Uh, I'm sure that'll be an interesting conversation. Uh other things you can do. Uh you yeah, can got on the in the bonus episode, I just want to mention yeah. the bonus episodes we got uh Hi, Michael here in the edit. A funny thing happened at this point in the episode originally. Uncharacteristically, Cameron and I began walking through, month by month, all the films we'd be covering for more or less the next year and estimating the point at which film adaptations might run out before floating some ideas for how we could branch out into new bonus content when it became necessary. About a week after that, SAG-AFTRA released their guidelines for podcasts, advising any union members or folks wishing to show solidarity not to direct their listeners to streaming platforms for rewatching. So, until the strike ends, none of the stuff we talked about is actually going to happen. We're branching out sooner than expected. Since it was recorded before the announcement was made, on the bonus feed for this month, you'll still find our discussion of Frank Darabont's The Green Mile, which we urge you not to watch, not just for strike reasons, but also because it's very, very bad. However, next month, instead of the TV adaptation of Desperation, we'll have something a little different for you. I don't want to say too much right now, but I think we'll be discussing some short stories by the British horror author Robert Aikman, a very different flavor of the genre than Uncle Steve, and for the conversation, we'll be joined by a special guest. I think it's going to be a fun time, and probably well worth your listen. So support us on Patreon if you want to get your ears on that. And until next time, solidarity. Jesus Christ, this kid, he's still he's still writing. He came out with a book this year. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's been released yet. I haven't heard much about it, but uh, yeah, just he's put it in when you know about it. I yeah, p- people let me know. Believe me, <laughs> like the second there is word of a new Stephen King book, uh, my Twitter notifications are lighting up. People are like, hey, hey, have you noticed this? And I sigh and I open up the spreadsheet and I add it. <sighs> We're currently in May of 2027 for the end date. Yeah. It's 2023. Mm hmm. Wow. How ma- when did we start? We started 2020? in 2020. It's going to be a 7-year show. Uh-huh. Minimum? Mhm. Good god. <laughs> All right. Well, patreon.com/range touch. Yeah, yeah, do that. Uh leave us reviews. Um Check us out on our various presences, uh, rangetouch.com, co-host.org slash rangetouch. It's the most demoralizing thing on the earth, knowing that every time we do one of these episodes, you check it off, and so our completion percentage goes up. Uh Uh-huh. And every time he publishes a new book, it goes down. Yes. That's awful. Yep. I've not had this experience until this very moment. It's I made this spreadsheet as my own little open air prison and uh... <laughs> God. 
All right. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I'll let you in the episode now. Oh, I don't know. Leave us reviews. Uh, do we have reviews to read? If you leave a five star review that is funny, then there's a chance that Cameron will read it on air. Uh, yeah. Look, we we're still trying to get to that five stars and people have been doing great work. You know, I keep appealing to you. Please give five stars, five stars, five stars, because we want to get that average. You know, enough. Uh, eventually, there will be enough five star reviews that takes over. That's how the the numbers work here. Uh, and so, uh, you know, not 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 one, not two, not three, not four. Yet five stars. And so we had some really great ones. This is from A Kelly twenty twenty two. Great podcast. Waiting for the Dave Van Ronk review. <laughs> Thank you for providing me with Steve facts to annoy my BF with. Well, there you go. You got both. Yeah. Wow. You got some info this episode about. What Harold Bloom thinks about Stephen King. Yeah. And you got a Dave Van Ronk review. How's yeah. it feel? <laughs> Create a second account. Make another five star review. Let us know how it feels. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, yeah. All right. So thank you so much for listening. Oh, uh, no, I got to oh. keep going. Oh, I got, you got I another. Got, we got one. I'm going to read okay. the second one. There, okay. there's some, okay. there are some here that are good. They're just really long. I'll I'll re I'll preview them next time. I forgot to preview oh. for here. Yeah. This is from Arthur Wyatt. It's five stars. Uh, the web's best monarchist podcast. <laughs> Long live King Charles and all who celebrate him. We are but crawling peasants. That's funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, something that I should mention, uh, because you yep. brought it up at the beginning of this episode, uh, we should do our yearly uh, Q&A episode at some point yeah. uh, before yeah, this yeah. episode, before this year ends. Uh, and so typically if you're if you're new you haven't like finished the backlog or whatever uh once a year we'll do a q a episode and we'll also like order everything that we've read we'll do our greatest hits or whatever yeah uh, we make our rank order and it changes yeah and, and i last time i made mine live on air and it had some real changes in it yeah so you never know uh so yeah uh, uh if you want to send questions into us uh you can email those to us at the question sewer at gmail.com uh, and uh, uh, you know give your preferred name in the question or whatever so I know what to read it out on air if uh, it's going to be different from what you're sending in so just a little you know point of business there uh, but we'll go through or I'll go through I will sort out all the questions try to see if I can find some themes or categories that I can arrange them into and then Cameron and I will just talk for like three hours answering those questions if uh, past episodes are any indication yeah, normally we release this in July, and uh, you had some travel to yeah. do, and I've been very busy, but we'll release it in August. We'll record it yeah. um, in the next couple weeks, and that'll be up on the... I think that goes in the normal feed. That'll be in the normal feed. I, no, wait. Is that on the bonus episode? Uh, I, I think historically we've done it in the normal feed, but I would need to double yeah. check. Oh, look. I'm, yeah. I'm, doing it, I'm doing it live. Uh, no, it's in the... Oh, yep, you're right. August. Mm -hmm. I actually released it in August last year, so we would just I, record it in July. So good to go. So it'll be sewer special number three uh, yeah. coming up in August. So send your questions in uh, and we'll make a call out on Twitter and stuff like that, too. Yep. That is the question sewer at gmail.com. Awesome. Uh, and then next month, we will return to Just King Things to discuss. Uh, uh, I didn't really flip a coin to decide how we were going to do this because both of the books released on the same day. I just followed uh, the list given on Stephen King Revisited, Richard Chismar's website. Uh, we will be discussing 1996's Desperation. I am desperate to get to it. I did mean that pun. Woo! Woo! Yeah, worked out. All right. Well, we're done. <laughs> 
until next time, do it for Steve. <laughs>